underlying this idea of the criminal justice system and prisons is this idea that people inherently are either good or bad and that if someone does something bad that is that characterizes them for the rest of their life so i think part of that daily practice is also really really looking at yourself and thinking do i have the ability to transform things in my life like is that is that possibility available in me and also looking at do i do i genuinely believe in that for other people as well and i think if you ask yourself that question then often it leads to more productive conversations and situations Hi, this is the Ignoramus's Guide to Surviving Humanity. I'm Eliana Chun with your co-host today, Seorsa. Seorsa. Still, yeah, still so good, but still unsure. <laughs> still unsure. And our very special guest. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. My name is Isabella. So I am a community organizer and writer. And I also help with organizing protests and things like that. Um, I, yeah, I mainly am concerned with things to do with prison abolition and resisting immigration, detention, and really shitty policies. Am I allowed to swear on here? I don't know. Yes, please. But, okay. <laughs> okay, great. Some really shitty bullshit um, policies that are created by governments and, you know, many other, uh, many other entities punish people and make them very unhappy and uncared for so yeah that's me <laughs> hey thank you so much for coming on the pod I'm really interested in the shitty policies that uh we're, well we're currently in the UK um so I guess we could jump right into it what's up with the whole Rwanda situation because I've heard from people who are like well it's really good because we don't have space here <laughs> so so it's great to like move people over there and then give them funding yeah so what do you say to those people um i think they should read um some things potentially articles about why it's not so great an idea i mean it's it's quite difficult because especially i mean i think in in all politics but the you know UK politics in particular at the moment there's an incredible amount of spin and misinformation around um, migration policy and there always has been and it's you know it's only gotten worse and to to quickly in a nutshell explain what it is that's going on with Rwanda in, in April of this year the UK Home Secretary Priti Patel um, she announced the beginnings of another really devastating blow to migrant rights here and said that, you know, there's going to be these planned deportations of asylum seekers. And the plan was to deport them to Rwanda. And the idea is that this was all in the, in, in the name of efficiency to provide more time to process their asylum applications and, and things like that. It was going to be more cost effective. It would be an effective partnership with the Rwanda government. So, um, yeah, this was, you know, this being made possible by the recent introduction of the UK Nationality and Borders Act. And so what it allows the government to do um, is to transfer migrants to what is called a safe third country to do the processing bit. And um, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's really a bunch of bullshit because it's unethical on many grounds. I mean, we've seen that, you know, the UNHCR has itself challenged it on human rights grounds um, for many reasons. And one of them being that 
you know, in, in Rwanda, like the UK government itself has acknowledged that it is not, there's, there's a lot of discrimination and abuse, including from local authorities of LGBT uh, plus individuals, and that there's no specific anti-discrimination laws to protect them. So essentially sending people that are seeking asylum, often because of discrimination due to their identity, to a country where the UK government is acknowledging that they'd be put in danger. I mean, that's inherently, you know, a threat to their human rights. And additionally, it's been made very clear that in Rwanda, there would be, uh, com- you know, even more of a lack of legal aid available to those people seeking asylum and translation services. The appeals process would be very difficult for them if their asylum claim was um you know, rejected. And those things are already limited uh, services here in the UK. There's continual cuts to legal aid and, and funding and things. So yeah, it's it's unethical on many grounds. And then, you know, there's always the thing in the press that people will say of like, oh, it's cost inefficient. You know, it's costing the taxpayer lots of money. But I would argue that that's, that pales in comparison to the human-centered impact that it has um, on many people. And it sends yeah. a very clear message, you know, to to people seeking asylum here and to people that are just vulnerable to the the border regime that the UK government doesn't want people here and that they will go to extreme lengths to exclude and punish people for just wanting to be included and cared for so yeah yeah that that was my little nutshell um, yeah it's like openly hostile right and Mm -hmm. the fact that it is against international law as well to restrict your ability to seek asylum at your the place that you choose to seek asylum there is no rule that says you must seek asylum in a neighboring country um and i feel like this comes up every time uh, that we have like a mass like human migration um movement or or when we have uh issues with asylum seekers right is that there's always this rhetoric that comes up of well why can't they just go here well why don't they just you know stay in this country um not yeah not really taking into account right all the myriad of reasons why you wouldn't do that so yeah and also it is it is definitely I mean you know if you look at the the people that have been trying to seek asylum um I, I saw this one interview of this Ugandan woman who was leaving Uganda because of persecution for being uh, queer and you know saying well Rwanda is a neighboring country if I felt it was safe to go there of course I would go there but so much easier <laughs> there is a reason why I didn't choose to do that yeah and I think also as well um this really even if even if uh, um, a, a refugee or asylum seeker isn't currently affected by this right it really puts them into a really tricky situation the same way that you know during the Trump era when he announced right that he'd wants to build a border wall that he was going to separate I mean, not that it was a new policy, right? But, you know, he yeah. uh, he was going to continue <laughs> to separate um, kids from their parents at the border, it just in a slightly more cruel way, I think. Um, more overt, I think, rather yeah, than... Yeah, like else, it... Right? Like what, Hillary that, Clinton talked about a fence. He talked about a wall. <laughs> right. Like, but what that it. did, right, was, you know, was essentially um, put people into a state of panic because it's not going to stop them necessarily from crossing the border or from making a trip, right? Because, you know, if you feel like your life's in danger, you're going to do that anyway. But what it did do was make them feel like they would not be welcome or they'd be turned away or, you know, that they were in an even more desperate situation than they're already in. Um, so, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense on any level. And as Isabella is saying, at the human level, it's just, it's just cruel, right? There's no other 
ways about it. It's it's not effective. It's just cruel. And I think it is part of a larger sentiment, right, that this conservative government has been pushing forward. Um, it's it's not a surprise that it's like linked not just to uh, to the to the borders bill, right, but also uh, linked to like the police crime sentencing bill as well. So it's a it's a whole wholesale concerted effort, right, to to make Britain um, to make it clear, right, what what kind of people Britain welcomes and what kind of people Britain will not welcome. And it's yeah, it's especially at the same time, right, that we're encouraging they're encouraging people to open their doors to Ukrainian refugees, mm. Ukrainian asylum seekers, giving people yeah, I mean that kind of policy, that kind of talk has never happened in the history of as far as I'm aware. I mean, maybe since the Second World War, right, of like opening your homes um, to refugees. I mean, I think it's obviously mm. wonderful that we should be doing that, encouraging people to do that, but not when it's only focused on specific subset of people. Um, that's when it becomes really problematic. Something that is, it's really symptomatic of like the wider, like the relationship that abolitionist groups have with the media. It's really, it's quite difficult because often they'll seize upon this idea of like who is a good immigrant who is a good asylum seeker and then we have to be careful because it's like we use the platform to you know or use the situation to raise awareness about this you know this wider issue but often you know that that gets like subsumed into this tiny thing of like oh yeah this is all about just these Rwanda deportations or this is all about just you know Ukrainian refugees you know so it's Mm it's really difficult like um, reckoning with that and and wrestling with like that relationship with the media but yeah yeah that's a really good point too because you can see how the Ukrainian refugee ironically the Ukrainian refugee um, situation because they're the worthy victims are also used to get more funding for weapons for Ukraine (laughs) like so it's like ironically a pro-war way and more NATO membership at this point and more NATO yeah so and they don't even know where those weapons are going either like yes I mean have we ever no way to track it but I think we're pretty certain they're just coming back to Europe through the black market I think that's kind of obvious um yeah it's ridiculous with abolition there are I mean, it's such a, I think it's still very controversial. It's like um, a controversial topic. Say, Orsa, this was uh, your idea for this series, which I loved. Thank you. Um, so what was the inspiration for this? Why did you want to do this series and why abolition? And Yeah, absolutely. I think the intention is to make these really broad, wide ranging topics uh, accessible and not not accessible in the sense that oh now I get it after listening to an hour podcast um <laughs> I guess more uh more I mean, everything maybe. yeah let's see this the theories of them um obviously have been established for a very long time right there's a lot of literature on it so mm-hmm. it, I think it can perhaps be a bit overwhelming um and also I think people a lot of the time don't see or find it difficult to see the practical applications of it. And also I think people tend to view abolition as uh, this really obscure or faraway end goal that's not you know, within their imagination. So they find it difficult to bridge the gap between what the current reality is, which obviously we're very far from abolition, um, right. to what abolition looks like. And so you know, with this and I think we managed to do it with with our mutual aid conversation as well, right? Is to make it 
seem uh, like it is more of a everyday intention that you have to practice and it is a practice, uh, right? You know, what, what things in my life um, can be abolition focused and what things in my life, uh, you know, are maybe contrary to that quite, I think a value led or a principle led belief, right? <clears throat> so I think it's about training yourself to be constantly thinking about everything through that lens. And also I think the reason why conversations about abolition have not been successful or have been really difficult to, to cultivate, although I think it is improving, you know, I think there's loads of like abolition reading groups and, you know, even the fact that it's now discussed poorly in mainstream mm -hmm. media, right? The fact that it, it, it is being discussed is something that's quite new. But I think what, and again, there's another failure of the media, right? Is that uh, what, what tends to happen and what tends to be the focus of conversation is the extreme cases, right? Because anytime you talk about prison abolition, uh, it, the, the question inevitably, the first question that everyone has is, well, what about the murderers and the rapists? Well, what about the really violent offenders? And it's like, well, we don't even have to talk about those things. <laughs> we can very much easily talk about really simple, you know, like low level criminal activity or nonviolent offenses, right? Like, why don't we start there <laughs> uh, in terms of a solution? Um, and then, because abolition is not just based on one thing, like getting rid of prisons, getting rid of borders, getting rid of, uh, you know, the criminal justice system, uh, the fact that it is systemic and holistic, uh, the more that we talk about abolition, I think the more it also just helps people in those conversations to connect those dots between all these different avenues and then realize that actually we're not talking about different things. And I think in this conversation as well, we will talk about mutual aid and we will talk about, you know, solidarity, right? So all, again, all of these things will kind of come together. Um, right. So yeah, so hopefully uh, people will feel like they are closer to practicing abolition in their daily lives in some capacity or another. That is um, a, good, um, a good point because um, one of the first things that I always hear with defund the police um, would be, well, what do you do without police? What do you do without prisons? So what do we do? I'll jump in here. Yes, <laughs> so I think, I think um, Sarasa makes a really good point about abolition as a practice in daily life. It can be really easy to think, oh, it doesn't exist, but it, I would argue it already does in many senses. And I think, you know, one of the biggest blocks towards understanding abolition is this idea that you know, because currently the criminal justice system and the way we know it, like this punitive idea of justice, it's presented as this catch-all solution to every single problem in our whole entire world. And it's an inherently, you know, really capitalist way of thinking. And that's just not useful. That, that That's not how life works. Like abolition uh, doesn't have to be the answer to every single social ill because the criminal justice system as it currently exists isn't even the answer to every social ill you know so I think that that can help I think with the introduction to abolition is just going into it being like okay this doesn't have to answer every single question in my head um, but to get back to your question of what you know what abolition is and what does it look like mm -hmm. it's really about you know dismantling this idea of um, you know, punitive justice that, you know, in order for a, like healing to happen or a right to be wronged, that someone has to be punished in a violent way, you know, whether it's imprisoning them or, you know, hurting them in some way, um, that that's necessarily going to 
prevent that harm in the first place and also account for the, the justice that needs to happen, the healing that needs to happen for the victim, you know, for the people that have experienced that. And so it's really about resisting the current system of prisons and the, you know, the related prison industrial complex. So all the different things that are in place that allow and perpetuate the prison system to continue. Um, and also it's about resisting reform. In some senses, there are conversations within the abolition, uh, abolitionist movement about, you know, the, like, whether or not reform is useful to an extent, because we often say it's about not just preventing harm, but also accounting for harm while it's, you know, after it's taking place or while it's taking place. So some people argue that, you know, we should support certain reforms, but at the same time build towards this idea of no prisons eventually, while others argue that we need to resist reform in any sense of the word because mm. it will just get co-opted and so forth. So um, there I think is, that's you know, a really important yeah. point there um, about mm -hmm. the difference between reform and abolition, because I think this is where people also get stuck on quite easily, <clears throat> excuse me, as well. and. Um, and I think this is why abolition um, is makes it maybe more complex, but the, you know, I think the the nuances needed and, and critical, right? Otherwise, you know, without the nuance, we're not really gonna make the changes or be able to identify identify where the changes need to be made, right? To to um, see the change that we want. Um, so I mean, it's a thing that comes up that came up a lot during um the first wave of, you know, defund the police right back in 2020, when <clears throat> I think everybody was looking for a catchy slogan or a catchy um, solution, right, that would kind of um, make everyone agree or something or, <laughs> or make everyone kind of understand, uh, you know, what defund meant or what abolition is. But what ended up happening was um, it kind of, it got really co-opted and got really messy when people started putting forward, um, what, what we would call, um, uh, you know, reformist reforms and not abolitionist reforms. So things like uh, body counts, right? Like that was a really popular topic and it still is quite a popular topic right now of, well, let's just give the police body counts, right? Um, <clears throat> and that will prevent somehow, uh, you know, more violence. Um, and I think the other th great thing about abolition is that when you're looking at policies through an abolitionist lens, um, you think a lot more about the intention and the effect of it versus right now where we, you, you kind of go in um, without really thinking about those, those things critically, right? It's all about, okay, how do I punish the person as much as possible? Or how do I catch them so I can punish them? Um, so when, when you look at things like body cams through an abolitionist lens, it becomes really clear really quickly um, how ineffective something like that would be, right? In the short term and the long term. So from a practical perspective, right, it, it, it creates more fun. Well, you, you're giving more resources to the police, which is not what we wanted to in the first place. Um, if you look at how body cams are used, right, they can be turned off, they can be, they can malfunction, whatever. Um, but also, you know, we already have tons of body cam image that we can, images that we can analyze. And from that perspective, we already know that from a body cam of a police officer, you, in the scene of a situation, you actually can't tell who is coming towards who, you know, who's the aggressor, who's, who's defending themselves, right? It's, it's really difficult to be able to assess that. Um, 
So then quite quickly through an abolitionist lens, right, you can really easily see this is a reformist reform and therefore it's not actually going to put forward our goals of abolition. Therefore, you know, we, it's not something we should push for. Whereas, right, if you don't go through that analysis or if you don't have a clear idea of what you want your reforms to do, then it can seem, I think, to most people and it still, I think, seems to most people like a really great idea, right? Because it's like, mm -hmm. oh, it's increased accountability. It's this and that. Um, whereas, you know, something like if you actually want increased accountability, something like overturning in the US qualified immunity would be a great place to, <laughs> from a policy level, right, to actually um, create accountability. Because right now, if you're a police officer or actually any, I think, state official, right, you can't be sued for murdering people, <laughs> essentially. Um, so, right. So I think it's it's a really useful lens to apply from a, even like a small policy matter or a small um, proposal um, that we're looking at to something really huge. Yeah, there's a way in which like these small reforms, like you're saying, can actually chip away at the power of the police, but there's also a way in which they just can add on. And if you have no accountability in the media towards like, you know, they can just report both things as the same or, you know, like they're just, uh, it's just another way to sort of keep us paddling in the water, I guess, and getting nowhere. When you guys talk about like the daily abolition, the, the more accessible abolition, what are you talking about? What, how would you define those things? Um, so I think, you know, one thing, for example, is like, I mean, it's even in the relationships between, you know, each other. Like if you have a, like, this might be a little bit of an extreme example, but say within your friend group, there is a case of like domestic abuse or sexual abuse between mm -hmm. two of the people in your group. Um, and, you know, the first first reaction most people have is, oh, my gosh, let's cancel this person. Let's put their picture up on social media. Let's tell everyone that it happened. You know, let's let's shun that person. They're no longer part of the group. You know, this this kind of like this mentality. Right. Mm -hmm. um, well, a more of a like an abolitionist approach to it which takes into account these i these concepts of like transformative justice would be you know let's let's work through this as a community to create value from this like let's let's not try and just like add on to the harms that are already there and just give ourselves this this narrow idea of like justice equals this person's life is just we just demonize this person you know instead of thinking about okay what does what does the person that has been harmed need so i think a daily abolitionist practice always begins with the idea of you know where harm has happened you ask you know you center the person who has experienced that harm and you ask them, what is it, what is it you need, right? And you consider in your mind, what are the things that allowed for this harm to take place? And then you try and prevent those things from being there or alleviating those conditions. So I think it, it I think at daily abolitionist practice, it involves asking yourself questions about is is the punishment that I am putting or like imposing on someone because of something they've done like or this way I'm holding someone accountable does it change something does it help who has been harmed why am I doing it so it's it's very reflective and other than that you know daily abolitionist practice looks like supporting like you know signing petitions for, to support people that are in detention or there's a group that I'm I'm part of called SOAS detainee support and they as part of this group we go and visit people in immigration detention um, some of them are kept in immigration removal centers here in the UK and some of them are kept in prisons 
there's not a huge difference between the two because the conditions are utterly awful in both but what we do is you know like maybe on a weekly basis maybe once a month you go and visit someone in detention you speak to them and you just ask them what is it you need support with is it emotional support do you want someone to to talk to do you want me to help you find legal aid you know do you what is it you need so i think it looks like how you deal with conflict in your daily life like that's the starting point um and also joining an organization or some kind of network that supports people that are in detention currently so um and centering the people in detention there um, or prisons there um, and then also just kind of keeping up to date with the ways that the prison industrial complex is just ever growing and and speaking out about it you know mm. protest is one way of doing it but not the the be all and end all in by any means yeah uh, i really yeah. want to focus on the on the interpersonal thing because i think when when people think about okay well i want to get more involved in abolition or i'm going to join a reading group i'm going to read angela davis uh you know i'm going to go support detainees um but what i think what people don't do is think about how to apply abolition principles into their daily lives right so i think it's one thing to be volunteering or to be working on policies that affect uh you know people that you don't know but if in your own community in your own circles you're causing harm in punitive ways then are you really an abolitionist and and this is this is honestly the hardest part of it uh, of being any kind of radical or progressive in, in any way is actually applying the principles and the theories that you claim to care so much about in, in your daily lives, right? Because part of the reason why it's difficult is because we, we live in a capitalist patriarchy that really is restrictive in the ways that we can interact with each other, right? So part of trying to apply these principles that are some a lot of time the, the opposite in terms of values is really difficult right in this kind of constraining environment and also um even if you do understand these things in, in in theory right that everybody deserves you know dignity in their life everybody deserves mm -hmm. uh you know to be heard right even if they've done something wrong but you know 99.9 .9 of the time if that person it has been harmful to you or someone you care about. Those ideas go out the window. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think I think it would take a very um, someone who is too self-assured, probably probably too confident in their abilities to say that I don't have to account for when that happens because I know that my principles will, you know, keep my head high through that situation. You cannot know that. That's not possible. So, what? I would like people to start thinking about and doing more is how do we create uh, systems of support, community support, um, you know, within within my friend group or within my community, so that when there is interpersonal conflict or even when there's harm or abuse, because let's face it, that is not a rare thing that happens, especially to uh, you know feminine bodies, right? Um, that when something like that happens, there should be a contingency plan, right? Because as we've discussed already, the police and the institutions are not in any way effective, right, dealing with these things anyway, right? They're overburdened with this um, this task, right, to you know deal with these issues that they're not equipped to do. So, you know, how are we empowering ourselves to be able to do that, right? And it can't be, uh, you know, you just write a list of rules or you just agree on that, right? Like you have to actually have trust in the first place to be able to do that, um, and 
for anyone that's interested in the concept of transformative justice or how to apply those things. Um, I think a part of it is um, being ready to contend with those conflicts that are going to feel extremely uncomfortable and and horrifying. And and you know, and I think Isabella, right, your your just your um, description of how do we center the harm person is is absolutely the central point to transformative justice. Um, but in the majority of case situations as well, there's multiple people that have been harmed to different degrees. The person who have maybe even been abusive to someone else may feel harmed in the way that something else has happened or maybe in the way that the situation was handled. So then how do you deal with multi-parties feeling like they've received some kind of harm or, or abuse, right? So um, I don't think most people are prepared <laughs> to deal with the situation like that. But I think it's a huge mistake to think that it's you don't have to deal with a situation like that, or that's a situation that you can outsource to law enforcement. Or, but actually, right? That's not that's not really how a community or society works. Um, we we actually have to, if we're going to say right, we need to divest from these institutions. We actually then have to think about how we can actually practically do that um, on on a lot of levels. Um, and actually, this might be a good time to also explain a little bit of what transformative justice is and what it means. Um, so it's essentially, you know, looking outside of the existing institutions and systems um, to build a community-based way of dealing with harm and abuse, and also community-based way of, you know, setting up support networks as well. But what that doesn't mean is everyone in the village <clears throat> comes to a trial, because <laughs> if we're viewing it like that, then that's that's another criminal, criminal uh, Right. criminalization and punitive measure right so it's not about involving everyone in the community with every single issue it's about looking at conflicts looking at the level of the conflict looking at the level of the harm and the abuse and then determining from that you know who who does need to be involved right who's who's a trusted person and again it's not about getting an external judge to things i think a lot of people right we're so it's so interesting trying to like talk about these ideas with people because we're like the criminal justice system is just so ingrained into our brains, right? Through like media, through TV, through like all, all that consumption is that as soon as you start to say something like transformative justice or this is more fair, and then you start to say, okay, well, here's how it works. People start being like, oh, so you get a judge in uh, or oh, so surely you, you need to get someone in who's completely independent, who's impartial, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like, why is impartiality important? Why is, uh, why is getting someone from outside of the community important? I mean, sometimes, yes, that could be the best way to approach it, but why, why are you involving these external things that have nothing to do, that have no understanding of your community, right? So yeah, I think it's it's an interesting conversation to have with people. Yeah, and I would just add on to that, the way things currently are, this reliance on the prison, uh, prison industrial complex and criminal justice system being really punitive it really depends on this idea of like outsourcing power to deal with our own problems this idea that we're helpless so I think really central to abolitionism and transformative justice is this idea that yes we can deal with things ourselves we have that we have that capacity as humans to hold space for when there is conflict and conflict doesn't equal social death. That's really hard for people to get their heads around. And yeah, it's 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 difficult. It's really difficult to to do. But that's that's kind of the point, because no one ever said that working through these problems was easy. I think abolitionism can look 
um, really different in many different contexts in daily life. And there's no pressure to be everything or do everything all at once. It's really, it's about as many people as possible working to dismantle these ideas that harm and fear are like the driving forces of how society works and that people can't change. Because I think underlying this idea of the criminal justice system and prisons is this idea that people inherently are either good or bad. And that if someone does something bad, that is that characterizes them for the rest of their life. So I think part of that daily practice is also really, really looking at yourself and thinking, do I have the ability to transform things in my life? Like, is that is that possibility available in me? And also looking at do I do I genuinely believe in that for other people as well? And I think if you ask yourself that question, then often it leads to more productive conversations and situations. Yeah, that's really, it's kind of a beautiful way of looking at it. One of the, the concerns that I would have, or maybe the ignoramus would have, <laughs> would be, um, you know, oftentimes I think people don't really articulate what their principles are. Um, they're not used to talking about what their principles are. So anytime you, you know, it's like with the Ukraine thing, you hear a new news story and it's kind of like, they just sort of go with the wherever the media sort of guides them. And so in terms of abolition, it's really, I think what you're saying, it's really up to our own personal responsibility to figure out what the integrity, our integrity is, what our principles are. But how do we do that? How do we open that conversation in a way that empowers then all of us, you know, to stand true to our principles and what they are? and stick to them like know how to identify them like know how to identify when something comes up that's actually against their principles but they're just it's framed in a certain way and so they just sort of fall mm. into it you know what I mean yeah I mean I think it's it's the practice of being used to challenging your own interpretations as well as what's been presented to you right um, and I don't mean, you know, be paranoid about everything um, or question okay. everything, right? That's I not, question everything. That's Sorry. not necessarily effective. Um, but yeah. definitely more, you know, if you have assumptions about something, like always challenge those, right? And I think, you know, the thing with abolition is that there are so many resources already available that actually really, um, really easily answer kind of all the big questions out there, right? So it is one of those things that if you truly are curious or if you truly do have questions about abolition, I very doubt that your questions have not been answered already in a really easy way. Like probably, you know, something written in the 70s probably can answer your question about what you're thinking now. There's so much room. Uh, like I think the, the, the room or the level of debate or actually we should debate is not useful for everything but the the conversation that we're we should be having right now is right okay yeah which one of these uh, abolitionist reformist policies right should we be implementing right now that's like the most effective because there's lots of questions about that you know like do we go uh do we go and you know and dismantle like do we go in and uh you know try to uh i don't know like break apart the power already has do we try to like you know do we do a par parallel you know um system at the same time right so all i think all these questions are actually interesting and all these don't have solid answers um and also the practice of what creates a good community response to harm and abuse right that question also hasn't been answered either there's a lot of good guides out there, toolkits, uh, even resources out there for you to build that out. But 
until something happens in practice, it's very difficult to know what the best practice is until you actually build that. So um, yeah, so I think the, the easier questions of people who are you know, still dealing with the morality of, I think, abolition, right? That's actually where the easy questions are. So, you know, work, work through those uh, in your own time. And then hopefully you'll arrive at a place where you're ready to talk about like. Okay, I mean, you know, thing. you think it's easy because you are really you have read about it and um, I guess you've thought about it. But the truth is, like, I think people get it's like everything really that that the media does, like the Julian Assange case um, to me is like a really good example because it just shows that we're not living in a free democracy when we're in cahoots with the U.S. putting someone who's committed no crimes in maximum security prison for the last three years. Um, but sometimes when I talk to people about Assange, it's just like, I don't like him. <laughs> you know, it's like he exposed our war crimes and you just don't like him. And you think that's enough. Do you know what I mean? So mm. it's like, people aren't aware that what is your principle? You know, <laughs> they're not aware of that because they get thrown off by this like, well, he sounds intelligent. He's like really shrill when he talks, you know, it's like these like very um, superficial things, but they're very persuasive to people, I think. Especially I think they're persuasive if you don't have, yeah, a, a good framework in your mind, right? As you're you saying. Don't a, to work, yeah, right. they don't, exactly. So that's, that's what we need to do, right? Is to start building up these concepts in our mind of like what is acceptable and what is not. And the, what, I, what I meant in terms of saying it's easy is that if you have a question about, well, what does what does abolition have to say about murderers and rapists, right? Right. Okay. There's 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 answers out there to how abolition deals with murderers and rapists. Um, so you know, in that sense, it's like if you, you know, because I think a lot of the time people have questions that are um, not well intentioned in the sense that right. it's a question to um, start a discussion or argument on essentially like a red herring or like a straw man, right? So you end up going down this road because you know, if, think... if I respond to someone um, if I respond to someone who is asked about murders and rapists I know their intention isn't actually because they're concerned about murders and rapists they are trying to catch me out because they think that that's a gotcha moment for no, abolition. I think sometimes it could just be that like they might have a fear about well what happens if there's no prisons what mm-hmm. yeah you know, absolutely so yeah so the... I would start obviously to to explain that right and then you know obviously yes uh, whatever their follow-up question is, is going to be indicative of what their actual intent was. Right. Um, but I think uh, what I mean is that if I, if you go down the route of explaining that, and then the follow-up question is, you know, something, well, what about this other situation, right? What you end up doing is having a hypothetical conversation about something that's not real when the actual conversation is the practical reality, right? Because I think a lot of the time it's like, well, what about murders and rapists in this like future that isn't real? Versus, well, actually, let's talk about what's happening to murders and rapists right now under the current system of prisons and police, right? And how that is clearly not working or effective, right? That's a much more urgent conversation than a a hypothetical situation, right? That hasn't happened or isn't going to happen because that's not actually what abolition is about. So yeah, it's a, you know, if you know about abolition, it's about how to redirect those conversations and how to have an engaging or meaningful conversation, right? And then if you don't know about abolition, it's, yeah, you can easily get those kind of nagging questions out of the way on your own. And then, you know, the, the place to have more nuanced conversations is that the space is in between of, well, then how do we practically apply abolition and what would actually maybe be more harmful if we tried it, right? Um, at least that's where I think where the more interesting conversations are. Yeah, I'd, I, I would add on to this. Like, I don't think 
I think it's difficult because I, yeah, whenever I have a conversation with someone about abolition, they're like, this sounds like this beautiful utopia and this sounds amazing. This is great. And then those questions of, you know, it's, it tends to always be the questions of, okay, what about sexual abuse? What about domestic abuse? What about, you know, things happening to children? Those like highly emotive topics that everyone knows are a kind of like, they're a moral flag, like kind of litmus test, right? They're like, oh, if you don't have an opinion on this, you're not a good human being. And to echo what's been said already, but also just to kind of like expand a little bit more, I think that really central to abolitionism and transformative justice is radical honesty. And one of the most honest things that we can say to people actually is that we are not saying that harm does not exist, point blank period, in this world where prisons have been abolished. Harm is part of life. The current criminal justice system tells in a, a, a horrible lie to people that because we have prisons, because we have laws, that, that means people won't break them. Or if they do, then might have been harmed, but less people will harm. When we see, you know, by the facts and figures and lived experiences that, that it doesn't really prevent harm from taking place a lot of the time. So I think a, a lot of what we are doing is being really honest with people in contrast to the lies they're told that there can be a world where you are protected no matter what because we we can't we we can't tell that to people mm-hmm. we don't and we don't necessarily owe it to people to tell them like that no matter what in this life you will never be harmed there will never be something that happens to you and that might sound like a really out there kind of response but it's not an uncaring one and i think what Sarah is saying as well it doesn't come from an uncaring place it comes from a place of real compassion actually and real honesty and I think that's what people are owed actually like we've been saying abolitionism is a practice it's about there are going to be there are going to be challenges that come up and you can and I advise people to read or listen to as much as they can because there is quite a philosophical element to abolitionism in in contrast to the mindlessness of the current criminal justice system yeah I think reading is essential but also just just living it and you will make mistakes like sometimes you will deviate from your principles people do that that's yeah. that's a normal thing I but think you it's have about to creating, creating space you have to practice it I think but I think they're also part of abolitionism is creating space for you know if if you make a mistake or if you know you deviate slightly that it's not it's not the end of the road there's not punishment for that it's right. about okay what do we do from here and creating the space where you can be radically honest about and and own up to things and hold yourself accountable. Because right now, and I think a lot of the reason why people commit crimes and then lie about it or like try and evade responsibility is because we live in a society where if you are honest about something you've done wrong, or, you know, the truth appears of something you've done wrong, it equals punishment. So why, how can we ever expect people to be honest with us or, you know, to hold themselves accountable for something if, the current way that things work that equals punishment it's so <laughs> it's so um backwards if you think about it like so yeah i think it's it, it's really about creating space for people to be able to own up to when when they do harms or when they're wrong even in their just their practice in a, in a daily way so i like this idea of that that there is a, you're able to have conversation around you're able to have empathy for even the unworthy victims, yourself, everyone, even the privileged, so that you can make mistakes and you can still talk about it and have that. But I guess the thing that persuades me most about 
in a way that goes against what <laughs> Sayer said, just that, I guess, in a way, is just, um, I think the punitive justice thing, a lot of times people cling to that because they have a lot of anger. And uh, I also feel like I have a lot of anger, but my anger is more at the systems that are already in place. And so we, my sort of persuasion towards abolition would be, we know our systems aren't working, like in this country and in the US. We know they don't work. Um, instead of just keep trying to reform a system that is gonna squash any sort of egalitarian um, results, we might as well, even if we don't have the perfect answer for what is like the utopian system or the utopian answer, we might as well abolish what is not working and try to figure out together what is, right? I mean, is yeah. that a kind and, of- And abolition is definitely, it's not, I think, I think a lot of people only think about in terms of tearing down or you know abolishing or you dismantling or you know defunding whatever term you want to use um i think yeah i think for for a moment uh people were saying well you know defund the police wasn't a strong enough message because it didn't say but you know i think that i think that is a bit weak especially because you know defund the message was uh, sorry defund the police was such a central message and again right if you were uh if you claim to be pro black lives matter then you know, I feel like it's quite low effort to Google what defund the police means as a policy, <laughs> you know, ask. Yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, I think that's a bit weak. I think the, the reason why people didn't respond to it is because people just didn't believe in it. Right. Like, well, I mean, I don't think that's fair. I think it's like anything, anything that they could have said any slogan. It would have been the perfect slogan mm. and the media would have dismantled it in a way. Right. So yeah, like, but that's what I mean. Even, it's like there was no, there was no momentum yeah. of the people or the media to actually it get behind the, it. They yeah, just there was anything not enough. they said, yeah. even if it was the most clear, obvious, concise thing, right? Yeah. It would just never. They would have torn it down. So, yeah, absolutely. So yeah. I think what is important to focus on is, you know, abolitionists never say, and then tomorrow we'll get rid of prisons, and that's it. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it's it's really a matter of. No, no, no. Actually, uh, it's it's uh, the concept of harm, redu harm reduction is really central as well. Um, harm reduction as, as a practical term to mean, you know, how, how do we how do we make sure, right, that people, first of all, aren't being punished for something that is either a health issue or like a social policy issue? Um, and what's the way that we can do that right, without causing the the most amount of harm, that kind of thing. Um, it, it doesn't mean voting for Joe Biden over, <laughs> over Donald Trump, which a lot of people were saying uh, at the time. Yeah. Um, that's just harm on harm. Anyway, yeah. so yeah, so abolition is very much about, you know, what, what can we do instead at the same time or even to get ahead of whatever things that we do actually want to dismantle to, to make more people safer as well. That is really what would be great if the media would focus on right because what, what we also have a problem right now in that the way that the media reports um their sources are extremely narrow right that's why whenever you see the state department <laughs> yeah whenever you see a report that has anything to do with the police right that has anything to do with any police department the, the quotes are already heavily from within the police departments or yeah or you know from basically it's coming from inside the house right so um yeah so mm -hmm. right now when we're reporting or when we see reporting on something the solutions are always institutional right it's always the police well with the police what do you think about this 
police issue that the police were really inadequate to solve. Obviously, the police are going to say, well, we, we just want more police, right? Sure, that, that'll help solve the problem. Or yeah, if you, if you ask a politician, right, what do you think the solution is going to be? Well, I think you should give me more money so I can, uh, and you know, and we, and the, the, the media rarely goes to sources where uh, it's more of a diversified response, right? Which I think is kind of revealing because um, if we talk about the practical, uh, results of, of abolition or the practical results of um, you know a more transformative or even restorative justice space which is similar to transformative justice in the sense that it's looking at it's centering the person that was harmed or abused um, but restorative justice practices can work within the existing systems like for example in the criminal justice system right it has been applied in that way so when you it's actually interesting when you talk about um, feeling angry or feeling like punishment is a response to, to anger. So abolitionists or abolitionism isn't saying that you have no right to be angry. Uh, actually, we're saying, uh, you know, you have every right to be angry. That's a really valid emotion. But what abolitionism does is, okay, and then what is actually the most healing, least harmful way of a system to help you deal with that anger, right? And even when we look at evidence of real life, if, if we can talk about extremes now, okay? If we're talking about extreme, situations of extreme violence right if we talk about rwanda or you know uh, uh the massacre there or like actual human rights atrocities and you know people that have faced from directly from other people from the neighbors like extreme violence right or you know whatever um in those situations or even if you look at south africa apartheid right um after those kind of horrific mass scale incidents what was most effective has never been. And then we put these people in prison and then we put the head of this person and we charged them with war crimes. Um, that has never been shown to make anyone feel less angry or feel better, right? What ended up happening in places like Rwanda and in situations where this happened is uh, where well, they went through a restorative justice version of things because you know they still had criminal courts and things like that as we went through this process. but. What they did was, and this never happens, by the way, in, in normal criminal justice situations, right? They they asked the, the victims, what would what would if what would it, uh, what would this person have to do to make you feel restored? What would this person would have to do to make you heal? And most people don't say, I want this person dead, or I want them. A lot of them were, would say things like, Well, this person destroyed my house, and I want them to help me rebuild it. This person, you know, um, did this, and I want them to help me to fix that, or like I want them to repair it, you know. So even in even in our current system where, it, I don't know, it feels like people are allowed to be angry and then the case is closed well. But at the same time, right, you, we never hear about uh, the follow-up to that, right? We don't see, I mean, there's lots of research on this, but in the media, right, you never like, and then a month later or a year later after this verdict happened, you know, how do the family members feel? And a lot of the time they do not feel better. Obviously, I'm not saying that's the same for everybody, but, and also a lot of hurt people want to punish, <laughs> um, but, overall right it's not really it's not even helping like that aspect of things as well and so a lot of these things are perhaps even counterintuitive but maybe it's only intuitive because of the systems that we've been like brought up in and maybe they're not actually counterintuitive maybe they're just um more effective but we're just so trained and so uh conditioned not to not to see the value in that um so yeah so i think there's um there's a lot well, of value. I guess there's a real lack of belief. Like if you really think in our current system that you're going to get, like, for example, if you're a country that's been completely decimated by the U.S., you're not going to want, you're not going to believe that the U.S. is going to come in and help you rebuild. You know what I mean? Like that's not, that's what they say. 
for decades, but that's not what ever happens. Hmm. So you just can't believe in that sort of justice that you're talking about where your hmm. lives can actually get better from the acknowledgement of the crime. Right. But this justice, right, isn't about other people coming to rebuild either, right? Or other people coming to help you. It's it's about how you can heal within your own communities, right? Because after, if we look at Rwanda again, after the, the massacre that happened there, these were neighbors and you know family members, right? So how can you live alongside your neighbor knowing that they or maybe their family or someone they know have done something horrific to you and vice versa, right? Like, so, you know, if, if you want to look at extreme situations, this is a very extreme situation. And even then, mm-hmm. the solution wasn't just more punishment for everyone because then you would have half of... Another genocide. Yeah. Right. You'd have half the... It would just be, you know... Um, a, a divided nation again essentially um so yeah so if, if we want to look at extreme situations even extreme situations right we don't want to we don't want additional punishment because that's never been effective um yeah and i think to add <laughs> to add on and also kind of like focus on um a different aspect of, of this conversation as well is like um who is it like when we're talking about like harm reduction and we're talking about justice also asking the question of who is it helping because it's never not helping anyone there's always someone that is being helped by the punishment taking place and Mm -hmm. most often it is the state it is the government it is like you know if we live in the uk it's the british government if it's if we're in the united states it's the u.s government and um something that is uh maybe not understood by a lot of people is like the inherent foundations you know um i would really recommend people to read discipline and punish um the birth of a prison which is a book written by michelle foucault um and it talks about you know the very foundations of prisons and really connects them to the maintenance of power by like by the state by the government uh, by the governing authority and a lot of the time it's like we say okay our anger you know, our anger is being felt like something is happening. There's something being restored. And the thing that's being restored a lot of the time with the current criminal justice system is the authority of the governing power. Because every time, like, for example, with Derek Chauvin going up on the chopping block, um, that's a metaphor, of course, but him being identified as the sacrificial lamb that is like, okay, we're sacrificing Derek Chauvin. Are you guys happy now? Like, BLM supporters, like, look, we actually have punished a police officer because yeah. didn't they literally say someone. after that uh yeah the, nancy pelosi or something yeah criminal yeah. justice has done its job <laughs> yeah exactly and and that's true. the thing it's like they get us by they get us by providing these symbolic sacrificial like victims mm-hmm. like and sometimes their own like one of their own like derek chauvin and they'll they'll be like they'll put on this performance of like look justice still exists because this person is going to prison so you can't tell us anything about justice not existing in this world or us not helping you and at the end of the day what it does is just it reinforces the the legitimacy of the criminal justice system firstly but moreover the government because what keeps a government legitimate is its ability to say we feed our citizens and we look after our citizens and who identify like the people that are our citizens are a narrow defined group of people right therefore none of our governments are legitimate according to that definition yeah right so it's 
it's it's really interesting like the foundations of prison are really tied into the formations of of governments and um the you know the increased legitimacy of borders and of nations which is yeah. why you know we spent a good bit of time at the beginning of this podcast talking about immigration detention and border abolition and those things are inherently at the very beginning of you know the foundations prisons those things are inherently attached like we, we don't just talk about things like transformative justice and immigration justice and you know various other topics by coincidence and just because they're all having a knock-on effect now we talk about them now because and, and in relation to abolition because at the very foundations of those things they're inherently connected as well which is why abolition can be quite an overwhelming thing to talk about for some people because it often it it's involved with a lot of different social movements and arguably, um, you know, an abolitionist ethic is necessary for every social movement and kind of like organization hoping to do anything. Mm -hmm. Because if you, if you aren't, if you aren't like inputting abolitionist principles and like these like harm reduction principles into your ways of organizing or your, you know, your ways of relating to people, then you're just going to reinstate the things that you are saying you're trying to fight against. And you can't, the, the master's tools will never dismantle the, the master's house type of vibe, you know, <laughs> like yeah. you, won't, you won't get anywhere by just imitating the, the oppressions that you're fighting against. Mm -hmm. So and, and you'll end up being a whitewashing. Yeah. You'll end up being like a whitewashing project. Another it one just becomes the yeah, white supremacist system again. But I, th I, yeah. I think it's really difficult for people to see that, right? I think it's very easy for us to point out the ills of these external institutions of the government, right? We can point to Priti Patel and say how evil she is. Um, I think that's really easy. And I think it's also easy to, uh, you know, read, read theory and uh, right, think that you get it. But when a harmful person looks like your friend or when a harmful person is a marginalized person um right it can it can feel uh your instincts can kind of want to feel like they want to take over again and start doling out that punishment uh, so it's yeah so it's really it's really i think important to if you're organizing or even you know amongst people that you're uh you're connected to and close to is to to have these conversations and to build out these plans when there isn't conflict currently in, in flight, because when there is a, a major conflict and you do need to resolve it within the group and you don't have something, a plan that's, you know, pre-made. So are um, you saying that with your group of friends, you have a plan? Like, well, how did this look like in your life? Uh, no, with friends, I don't have a, with friends, it's more about applying the things that I've uh, used before uh, codified versions of things that I've used before in in more like form, formal organizing groups right you know kind of escalation procedures um with friends it's it's more like okay well how do I contextualize that with an interpersonal relationship and then you know use it that way but with friends it's really more what uh, Izzy was saying before just use radical candor um which is a easy framework that you can it's you can google as well as like a whole as a whole thing that basically means right you should you should be direct and honest but kind when you're communicating and that's just that should be the underlying principle of every communication and therefore that will avoid right resentment conflict uh, things like that um so yeah so i think with groups though uh having something that's codified and agreed agreed upon beforehand 
so then that you can apply it right when when something is acting outside of that so you can point to something and say hey look you know we we agreed on these values and principles before you're i think you're probably not in line with this one let's let's think about it and let's let's talk about it um to help kind of resolve that um so yeah so i think it's even not thinking about okay how can we apply this at a policy level right how can we apply this interpersonally um and i think that's that's challenging for people right because one it's not something that you can like publish it's not something that you can say um well you can actually you can publish it it's probably quite useful to publish it so then you know these resources can get shared around but i guess more what i mean is that um yeah people don't often see that as part of the work because they don't see it transforming external you know systems or institutions um but actually right if we can't recognize where we're replicating these harmful things internally or amongst each other then you know how are we going to apply it at a bigger scale and that's another big thing about abolition as well and i think we touched on a bit last time with mutual aid is this concept of prefiguration right we need to to practice the things that we say that we want so that we can work out all the kinks we can figure out all the things that don't work in theory and how they actually transform in, into practice right all these things need to be practiced so that when it's ready to be applied at a larger scale we can actually do that we have the infrastructure to do that and we have the mindset going in to be doing that right that's why none of this is um uh it's just theory right if, even if you're learning the theory now even if you're only applying it to your friend group or within a group that you're organizing it has to be we have to think about how it can work on a larger scale as well if we're serious about making the changes that we say we want to make yeah, I think um, sometimes I have a lot of conversations with people where because they do feel so powerless in the world, they they tend to be, well, all I can do really is just work on myself, you know, and that's not what you're saying. I mean, yes, you're working on your interpersonal skills, but it's all the it scales. It's all the way up and down. You know, it's not like I'm only going to work on my family and my inner peace. <laughs> it goes all the way. It ripples all the way through. And, um, and that's really the only way. Right. Like you can't. It's just a hypocrite, <laughs> basically. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if it makes it easier, right, it's not like you have a, a set of rules for your friends and a set of rules for your family and a set of rules for everyone else. Like, you kind of have the same set of rules for everyone. <laughs> I mean, if we have integrity, you should, right? Like, that's, again, <laughs> we're talking about the principle. Yeah, but thing. I think I think yeah. people do actually treat people differently, right? I think that's part, probably part of the problem. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, for you know, sure, we don't, I'm not going to treat, treat my everyone. mom like my friend. Um so, but I mean, in terms of like <laughs> level of like, yes, the compassion. Dignity, like, yeah, compassion. Exactly. We, we don't have yeah. the same level. I have no dignity with my parents. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> Mom! No, no. <laughs> so, um, Isabella, how did you get involved in SDS? SDS, uh, so as detainee support. Well, it's, I think, you know, I was always just involved with social justice stuff even as a kid and I think that's just by nature like sometimes I don't want to say that like having an identity that is like not completely white necessarily means you're like a good person and you just like start to do good things but <laughs> no <it's> but <laughs> by no means whatsoever as we have seen time and time again yeah. but um I do think this my lived experience of kind of being an outsider in many different right. contexts always made me aware of those things. I was always super outspoken and yeah, and I've always been involved with stuff uh, to cut it short, but um, 
I think really going to SOAS, so that's the School of Oriental and African Studies, it's um, part of University of London, you know, going there for my degree really opened my eyes um, and put me in, in community uh, with a lot of people doing amazing things. One of the first groups that I joined at, uh, at that uni, like kind of extracurricular groups was um, this group called One Day Siyum, which actually is a proper registered NGO, which was founded by Vanessa Tahaye. So she she works um, around a lot of like Eritrean human rights stuff. And it was about specifically campaigning for the against the imprisonment of her uncle and many other journalists speaking out against the Eritrean regime and dictatorship. Mm. So from that, I was like gaining some awareness of abolitionist discourse and then moving like forward from that, I, um, I, I found out about SOAS detainee support. I'd always been interested in a career in law and I started, yeah, I started getting involved with their organizing, which was a combination of going to visit people in immigration uh, removal centers and supporting them in, in, in a myriad of different ways, being involved with protests and different like direct actions and things. And then um, from that, yeah, during just even during university as well, I took a course called Conflicts, Rights and Justice. And <laughs> there was different essay questions we could choose. And there was one I chose and it was about mass incarceration and what encourages mass incarceration to grow or something like it was a weird question but it got me involved with a lot of abolitionist uh, discourse and uh, materials and that's where that's when I first heard about Angela Davis and it was one of my classmates Yasmin was like oh you need to you need to read Angela Davis she was they always give us like all these old white guys to read about when it, <laughs> right. even in abolitionism right because it's there's all these old philosophical texts and stuff and she was like, no, you need to get Angela Davis in your bibliography. I was like, okay, let me see what's happening. And uh, yeah, so that was a really long written answer, but that's how I kind of no, got involved it. with these things. Um, yeah. So the first time you went to one of these these detainee places, oh, <laughs> yeah. um, was there anything surprising, anything that you learned that you, what was that experience like? Um, well, it's, okay, so the first time I went, I think the importance and, and the barrier of language and translation a lot of the time is quite significant and just the inherent lack of trust that environment cultivates. It's really difficult because you'll often get put in touch with someone who's seeking support, but because that environment is just so, is so harmful and it's so horrible, people aren't necessarily super trusting or verbose about their conditions when you first meet them there is a lot of effort that has to be put in place to build a connection a lot of the time and also how kind of militaristic <laughs> immigration removal centers are and it's it's interesting because some people are kept in immigration removal centers and some people facing immigration detention are kept on in prisons for example if they've served their prison sentence and then they're they may face a chance of deportation afterwards they'll just be kept in the prison a lot of the time and the environments can be quite different and weirdly enough when I've been in waiting rooms for immigration removal centers and I've been in waiting rooms for prisons the prison environment was more inviting especially oh to gosh. like putting on this facade to visitors and things like that like in the waiting room for example there's like a kid's play area in a in a prison often 
and there'll be like Paw Patrol posters and various oh pieces gosh. of propaganda at these boats and stuff, like motivational like stuff. And then, mm-hmm. but when you go to an immigration removal center, it is very, it's a lot more clinical. There's not this effort of putting on the pretense of like, oh, we're caring for these people. Mm-hmm. And that's often the result of the fact that more of those people that are in immigration removal centers are, they're not British or they're not what right. counts as British and they're POC. So they have no rights right. at all, really. Yeah, so they're not seen as human. Uh, so I think, yeah, those would be the things that surprised me the most. Um, and even, mm-hmm. and I think the biggest surprise as well has been that people assume that people in detention or in prison are inherently abolitionist because of their right. own experience. But what shows, but that's, it's not the case whatsoever a lot of those people will still have this idea of oh I'm locked up in here with all these bad people and it's still it, it shows how much work there is to do that even that you can experience incarceration and still be kind of captured by that logic of there are good people and there are bad people um and that prisons are necessary so yeah that yeah. was quite a surprise I, I think. mean but like judging by the environment right the mm. way that it's so gross and inhumane you you have to believe well this isn't for good people surely right if (laughs) if it's this uh, traumatizing then yeah then yeah we people here must deserve it if it's not me then someone here deserves to be here because why else would you create this environment right Mm, yeah yeah but those those would be my main like the biggest takeaways and surprises, I think. Yeah, that's really interesting. How does this open borders, because I think there's a lot of fear mongering around the term open borders. Um, so how does it work? How does it, what does it actually describe it to me a little bit? Explain um, it to me. I would also love to add in here, because um, I think this is going to be relevant as well, uh, our conceptions about violence. Um, because I think, you know, we like to say borders are violent. Um, which I think we want to expand people's definition of violence, right? Because right now we only really concentrate on interpersonal violence as like the only valid form of violence that needs to be punished essentially, or, uh, or theft, <laughs> theft, uh, theft and property destruction and interpersonal violence is like the only forms of violence that our society really cares about or mm-hmm. not, not cares about, right? But focuses on. I like, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But what doesn't get talked about is like all the institutional violence that happens. And before we get into that, though, is there's an interesting thing about open borders in general in that. Uh, so obviously in the, U- in the U.S., there's a constant debate about U.S. border in the South. What does it mean to have a physical border? How are people getting across? Um, and I think what's interesting there is that we have decades of evidence of the migration and how that flows and how that works across that land border and i think they found that you know decades ago uh, when the us had a more of an open-ish border policy right because you know whether they want to admit it or not they're overly reliant on migrant workers from central and south america um so what would happen in the past was, you know, the seasonal workers would come from Mexico, Central America, do, do, their, do their jobs and then leave and go back home because why would you not want to be with your family back home? And because the borders were relatively free, then they could come, come and go as they oh please. Yeah, and sense. then obviously when Reagan uh, came on, 
uh, right, the, the policy started getting like harsher and harsher and kind of evolved into what we see today, where they essentially closed those borders, right? So then obviously, logically, uh, the, the migrant workers, the seasonal workers are like, oh, shit, well, if you're going to close us off, then and we can't come back in and get work, we still need to, to work because, you know, that's, that's how we're going to support our families. But if you're going to close that border, and then we're just going to come and stay because, you know, we still need our jobs, right? We'll just send money back. Right. But otherwise, you know, um, so when we're talking about effective policy and what we want the policy to do, right, a lot of the time, it's not about doing what instinctively you think is right, but actually, you know, if, if the effect of the policy is that you want less immigration or you, you want less undocumented people setting, settling in the U.S., then the practical reality of how that works is actually maybe not what you think it is. Um, so, yeah, so I think when we talk about this concept of open borders, it's, it's interesting where that fear comes from um, or, you know, how much is actually rooted in reality. And also, um, I think it's important to highlight what we mean when we say that borders are violent. Um, and essentially, it's if you have a border and you have to enforce it using police or the military, that's pretty violent. <laughs> Oh, and also they were saying, I can't remember what it was, like 100 miles or I don't know what it was, but around that ICE has, um, do you know that? Yeah, uh, the Border that? Patrol have, uh, they have the right to um, detain and stop you and yeah, question you and no uh, knock. within 100 miles of miles the border. Of the border. Yeah. So they can just like burst into your apartment or whatever. Um, yeah, within 100 miles. And that's like a lot of states. <laughs> um so yeah good times um so, can, I, so, can I add something about the open borders yes please well, I, was I think but... you know um coming off of our heat wave uh I think it's ever more important to connect how migration justice and border justice which is inherently linked to abolitionism is very it's very linked to climate change um and climate justice as well because um, you know, borders are violent, not just because of, you know, who they keep out in, in general or keep in, and, you know, all of, all these different like harms that take place, but because governments are very aware that, you know, as resources right. become ever more scarce <laughs> and situations like climate change is not felt evenly throughout the world. There's certain places where it is um, more impactful than others. It's more important than ever for us to resist this idea and notion of borders because they're going to be used to weaponize and harm certain people by not allowing them to flee uh, situations where climate change has made the places they live completely uninhabitable. And in large part, not even, you know, like this, this idea that, oh, things are really bad in like X country that's like, you know, where um, sea levels are rising, all of these things, but that's their problem because people have it in their heads oh if something's happening there it's probably because of stuff they're doing but everyone knows <laughs> that you know climate change doesn't work like that it doesn't just decide yeah. oh these people are going to suffer because there it's their fault you know no, and, and then, anyway like, it's like yeah, our it's fault like, it's like us and uk and historically exactly, exactly it's disproportionate and a lot of the the emissions come from the activities of uh, militaries, police. Yes. You know, and military is not even, I think like what's really scary is in the US, the military, which is like the biggest organization in the world, isn't even included in the stats for 
the climate um, emissions that what? the U.S. Even though it's one of the top emitters. Yeah, globally. that was part of the Paris Agreement thing that <laughs> yeah. they withdrew from. It, there's no oversight for what the, the military is doing in terms of the environment. And so it's not included in that um, the per capita three times China, for example, like per capita mm-hmm. in the U.S. That doesn't include the military and it doesn't include the American production in China. So... <laughs> yeah that those stats are always yeah really wildly right based on where they're produced versus where they're actually being used um stats are violent too stats <laughs> are violent too but i think what's interesting about stats is when they're heavily biased towards those stats are heavily biased toward the u.s and it's still condemning the u.s you know what i mean that's when you're like oh my god <laughs> yeah, there's no healthy level of consumption right now. There's no sustainable level of consumption um, in any developed country. Right. Something I would I would you know add is like um, something Sarasa was saying earlier was like you know abolitionism is often portrayed as really destructive, but in fact it's right. constructive. And um, I did this training to do legal observing for protests, which is basically you when you're at a protest you might have seen these people before is like they often have like fluorescent bibs on and they'll be there taking notes and what they're doing is they're not monitoring you they're monitoring the police and their behavior at the protest and how they infringe upon your rights basically and so by keeping that record if you get arrested at a protest or something and then they they take you to a uh, police station i almost forgot the word there for what police station is <laughs> If they take you to police station, there's a written record of someone who is independent and all of that, like a legal observer, to mm-hmm. kind of say you didn't actually do what they're trying to claim you did and the police officer probably didn't follow XYZ steps. And so something that made me aware of and that training was really effective. So like I would actually recommend people to do legal observer training is that it made me aware that there's actually so much there's so much of an ecosystem and infrastructure of abolition, abolitionist ways of being and protecting ourselves, both at protests and in general, that most people are unaware of unless they're part of that ecosystem. It's, I think that's important to mention. When yeah. you're at a protest, you might not realize it, but there are those legal observers that are there looking out for you. And there are also... There are also people that often can be there to provide like conflict de-escalation. Those might be just like monitors in the crowd. (laughs) There should be. There there might be monitors in the crowd and such. There's often, you know, there's people in a back office who are, you know, the legal observers will call the line to inform the back office of anything that's going on in the protest. And if, you know, there's certain things that are emerging or, you know, the the numbers of police there and things. So um, you are like, there are a lot of ways to protect ourselves when we're at protests that don't rely on us having to involve the police in any way. But who sends these people? It depends. Um, But yeah, I mean, the, what goes into a protest, I think is, is really interesting point. And Izzy, feel free to uh, add in stuff as well ideally any protest that you're organizing or attending the idea is that it's against the establishment probably so mm-hmm. if there's a police escort i would leave because one it's not safe because actually whether you're protesting in the uk or the us um there's police officers that are always recording the crowd and in the states we know that that is especially rough because you will be you will go into an fbi database essentially if your face is visible and it's being recorded by the police. And in the UK as well, there's also like what, what I think they're called like community liaison officers that go to protests yeah. and try to talk to you. So if that's happening, you're not at a 
a protest. <laughs> you're you're at you're at a parade where the police are escorting you. So you know, I would definitely leave that one. And then yeah, so as Izzy is saying, right? You know, the idea then is to okay, so how do we build up safety and community care with without the the um, prevalence of police, even though they weren't going to do that for you anyway. Typically, I mean. Ideally as well, you'll probably have multiple groups organizing like a protest if it's like as a bigger one. So there's a lot of coordination that happens between the groups of who will provide safety, who will provide, uh, usually you want some kind of, not like security, but eyes on the ground where you're kind of assessing for, for threats and things like that. And especially you want to be assessing for either police escalation or for threats in the crowd there's often plain clothed police as well uh, in the crowds kind of seeing seeing what's up um and then there's there's the route planning as well right you know what's like a safe effective route to get from a to b um you know what we want to do along the way or see along the way maybe there's you know some a place we're going to stop at uh and all of that should be kept fairly under wraps as well because again you don't want to be cooperating with the police so that they can you know escort you incident free to you know, your location and then like yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly the <laughs> open the door open the gates <laughs> yeah. for you and then yeah and then honestly what happens a lot and what people don't I think a lot of people are always surprised by when they show up to protests is there's always free stuff there's always like free food there's like masks there's like first mm. aid um and yeah and usually you know there's there's groups with capacities to provide these things already. So then like when there's a protest happening, what's being organized, you kind of go around the go around the, 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 the gamut and then you kind of, you kind of bring these things in. And then there's usually as well, ideally uh, medical care on site as well. So you, there's usually a team of medics, um, right? That can kind of rush in and, and again, right? So it's like, we're basically taking care of each other and ourselves. Um, so, the, so you're saying that community organizers organize um, these absolutely. things and yeah. they, and who trains the legal observers? So there's different networks across London. I know that train legal observers, and I'm sure in every city there is some kind of thing like this. Mm -hmm. But the the people that I, I trained with who are quite good are the Green and Black Cross, and they also provide police station arrestee support. So if you're at a police, if you get taken to a police station, what they'll do is they'll make sure there's a few people around there to offer support and inform people of their rights before going inside. So that all of this is to because some people may think, okay, why do I need to know about protest organizing and how when I'm listening about abolitionism but it's because it's to ensure you that if a protest which is like a civil disruptive event right if at a protest we can organize without police and we can keep people safe without police it shows you the potential of what mm. abolitionism can bring to our society yeah. and it also shows you how how we can deal with harm many people assume you know many people that are just starting out in protest organizing they they kind of go by the book and there's so many things to think about and they immediately think oh i need to inform the police of this like we don't want to get in legal trouble blah 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 i can assure you you don't need to tell the police that you're organizing a protest you don't you don't have to and right. by by doing so you might think that you're protecting the people there but you're doing the opposite um, i mean do you remember so that um I think it was last month in the US, there was a police officer that died during practice uh, training of <laughs> uh, protest uh, management. Like he actually died in the practice. So mm. yeah, mm. we should really try to stay away from them. And then we're not even covering like agent provocateurs, which I think is like at least part of every single US protest right now, like mm. FBI agents, you know? 
I mean, and they're always, oh, they're always so obvious as well. Um, <laughs> There's no plainclothes police officers dressed in They're never, they are never conspicuous. Really? Like, how do you, how hilarious. do you spot them? Okay, well, there's, I mean, <laughs> there's, <laughs> usually they have uh, no neck. That's, that's the, that's oh the joke, no. but also real, the joke, but also real thing. If they, if they look um, like a big thumb, they're probably undercover. Look out for the thumbs. That's my. I feel so bad for these like true abolitionist thumb people now. You, you know what it is? Just it's for like, thumb, thumb-headed abolitionists. I'm sorry. They they often have like those kind of like really flat, like kind of those flat small trainers, like not the chunky ones. Um, cargo cargo pants. Oh my gosh! Are we giving away secrets right now? Like now they're gonna yeah. be able to watch this and be like, now I know how to look like a real person. <laughs> <laughs> I, I highly doubt that they would have had the attention span to listen to this long of a podcast to be honest so I think honestly even... I think they are also I often see police undercover otherwise being really impressed by I think they're they're just shocked that yeah these people actually care about each other so much um because I think I think this part Isabella what you're saying is really important about the care that should go into protest. Not everyone is like, not every organization is like this, not every protest is going to be like this. Um, and also I think safety is a, a relative term as well. Like if you're, if an organized protest is supposed to include more civil disobedience, then as long as everyone consents to that, then obviously the level of escalation is going to be different to one where everyone's intention is to, you know, mark, go safely from A to B without, you know, police presence. Um, so safety is, uh, is kind of, uh, situational. Um, but always though, right. The, I think, yeah, what, what never gets talked about or really spoken about outside of these circles is also, you know, what happens to you after you're arrested, um, when you're being detained, right. Often there is jail support that can include legal services, like Isabel is talking about, but more often than not, it is just community members. Like I remember so many sleepless nights of just you're literally just outside of jail until your friend comes out or your friends come out. And the amount of times that the cops are just like, why are you here? Like, why are you still here? It's like, yeah, because we actually have people that we care a lot about and, yeah. uh, and know that it's a really terrifying situation that they're now in there, even if it's just for a few hours. Yeah, that's the level of care that we extend to, to our own people. So, yeah, so I think even if you're not, on the organizing side if you're if you participate in this i think you really your 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 day one protest if all this stuff happens right you go and it's well organized but then people get arrested and you do jail support you kind of see from a really short space of time the amount of community effort that goes into this and when seeing people develop this system of support and you know i remember whenever anyone got arrested right you know we have their their, their date of birth all the information their emergency contacts we have lawyers on on speed dial or from the whatever you know pro bono network that we're working with and you just get it done um so there's so much possible and again no one no one is a is a full-time community organizer no one is a full-time protester if they are they're they're fake so the you don't even need any resources to to build up these these skills right or um to to build up these capacities um and these are really 
really valuable repeatable processes that you can like set up again and again or to share with other people or to, to reuse right yeah like to your point Isabella people are really aware of the because it's not just showing up to protests all these things are coordinated and I think honestly these would go a lot better as well if people maybe shared more information or if you know because what I what I saw a lot about the the most more recent protests against Roe versus Wade is that inevitably you know you you'd have new people coming trying to organize and apparently there was just a clear disconnect from Black Lives Matter yeah and that movement and the lessons learned there right and you know not listening to maybe the Black women that were leading those and kind of lessons learned but it's so so easy to to do that and connect and, and share information and resources. So I think maybe if you're looking for something practical, if you're looking for how to how to practice abolition, right? Join either either join a protest and kind of maybe pay more attention to the organizers or you can you can ask questions. But you know, don't interrogate them or they'll be like, why are you asking them? They'll be like, like your thumbhead. If, if you're wearing <laughs> the wrong shoes or you're looking protect- particularly no neck that day, they may think that you are a cop. Um, but yeah. yeah, or I think even if you know, even if you feel like right, you're 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 hearing all these things and you're just like, oh I know, but I just feel like I feel people that have been imprisoned or they must have done something wrong, right? Then I don't know, go talk to someone in mm-hmm. prison. That that's like a really great way to, you know, you can there's like you can write letters, you don't have to go to prison. Like to, there's like there's lots of like letter writing schemes um for people. I mean, I think it's too. funny if that is the case that all people that are imprisoned are rightfully there, then the US having over 20% of the prison population in the world would suggest that Americans are really um terrible and also not not even saying that it's only what like 20 percent of people that you know should be in prison are in prison so or or 10 percent or something so you're saying you only have 10 percent of everyone that should be in prison so you're saying that there's all these criminals criminals out there running around being criminals anyway like 90 (laughs) percent of them so even even by prison's own metrics, like even by the criminal justice system's own metrics of, well, we, we punish people that are guilty. Well, or like we punish people that are criminals. Like, well, you're only punishing 10% of those people anyways. Yeah. You're not even delivering on what you say uh, you are. So. so basically what you're saying in my maths is that 100% of US people should be in prison. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's what they think. That's what I got. <laughs> but... Yeah, no, I think a final entry point into abolitionism for someone who might be like, okay, how do, what does this look like, is particularly around uh, psych abolition. So abolition to do with mental health and psychiatry, because mm-hmm. it is really carceral, the way that we deal, and like punitive, the way we deal with mental health, um, like crises for a lot of people, and also just like neurodivergence and different ways of being and thinking and existing in this world. So I think everyone has different interactions with people that may be in a state of psychosis or may have different kind of mental health conditions that, you know, some people are like, oh, that person needs to go to like a psych ward or, oh, that person is crazy, blah, blah, blah. I think trying to learn more about like this idea of sanism and like being you know just this idea that like certain people just shouldn't exist in this world and they should be locked up or they should just be like on the street like exiled like that that's a good way to start learning about abolitionism I think is looking at the ways we treat people um who go through really you know traumatic things and their behavior is altered because of that um yeah I think that's Mm -hmm. a that's an interesting entry mm-hmm. entry point as well. I think so. I think honestly, mm-hmm. applying it to every segment of population, right? I think 
Um, I think what's becoming more prominent now is the way that we also discard disabled people, right? And I think part of abolition as well is, you know, getting rid of the idea that people need to be useful or valuable or productive to be respected or have, you know, basic decent um, dignity, right? There's that kind of concept of who deserves what, which is really against the, the ideals of abolitionism. I think we're seeing now that this callousness that we've applied to, to disabled people, right? If you, mm -hmm. if you look at that through an abolitionist lens, I think a lot of the time as well, we struggle with, okay, how do I, how do I care about a segment of the population? And it's like, well, you can start by thinking about it in an abolitionist lens. And I think it's, it's unfortunately now becoming more an issue as we see more people become disabled because of COVID and like the long-term effects that we're seeing, right? Is that, you know, this construction of, well, I'm, I'm productive and able-bodied and they're not. And that means I can discard, ignore these people. Well, like as that population set becomes bigger, then I think we, it's going to force us to rethink the ways that we discard people and the ways that we don't center people. Um, yeah, it gets back to that scarcity mentality we were talking mm -hmm. about before. If we just keep trying to fight for this made up scarcity, that's not even true. I do have a question about going slightly back to the protest thing. How did the Priti Patel kill the bill situation, like how is it affecting protesting and all these um, parts that you were talking about, like safety, I guess. So the proposition of, of that bill, which is the, that was the police crime and sentencing courts bill. I think that was, right. the, it's such a long title and I, they've done that on purpose. So it makes it hard to talk so about. Stupid. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the policing bill, it essentially was trying to criminalize protesting to right. next levels. There was a new law that also included an offense of intentionally or recklessly causing public nuisance. So if you are- Which is the definition of a protest. <laughs> which is the definition of a protest that is criminalized. So that's literally criminalizing our right to protest, which is a fundamental right. human right. That's a little bit crazy. But also it was just it was just general things like imposing really strict consequences and fines and imprisonment time for for protesting people having to face jail time for like literally just showing up for their human rights which is they wild. also um, try to criminalize things like locking on so like if you like a mm -hmm. bike lock to a protest they'd be like oh you could lock yourself onto the gates or something therefore well, what i thought was really funny was that things like that there was like i think a few provisions in there uh, when it was still a bill and it went to unelected house of lords who said whoa whoa, whoa this is this version is way too undemocratic <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you gotta scale that back somehow and yeah. uh yeah so our fully unelected uh, house of lords felt like it was even too much for them were yeah were undemocratic <laughs> um but i think the practical realities i mean i've not i don't know isabel if you've been following anything that's been going on recently but i think the the full practical realities will take time um because right. i think what they're anticipating rightly anticipating i think is because of the, the crises, the, the multitude of crises that they've now put us in, um, this bill, and I think also the, the borders bill as well, right, is to preempt that, to preempt the, what might be a rising tide of just, I mean, I think right now the British people are, are just disgruntled, um, but you know, at any point, it could get tipped over. We don't know. I mean, there's like, there are protests all across the world, right? Like right now. I mean. Yeah, there are, there are real protests across everywhere. the world. Not Sri quite Lanka, real ones I mean, here. Yeah. Yeah. 
the Sri Lankan one was pretty spectacular. Um, baller. Inspirational. <laughs> <laughs> pretty baller. I was, I remember watching the footage and I'm like, why are they showing me a footage of like the gym? And <laughs> like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> Get it now. Yeah. So we should be, we should be there, but are we like, I mean, we should be next. I guess like, it right. Is, it should be coming. It's, it's tricky though. Right. Because the UK and the, I mean, the U S especially the U S has a highly militarized police yeah. forces across that. It's just, it's just not comparable to anywhere else in the world. No. So telling I mean, me when Americans... I was in LA, it was like three days. They brought in the national guard in LA and it was you know, the March 2020, and it was peaceful. Um, unless the left becomes militar- more, more militarized, right? You know, there's not a concerted way that you can combat the National Guard. Um, I mean, obviously... No, yeah, they brought in tanks. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, kind exactly. Of like... <laughs> um, so, yeah. yeah, so I think I it is it is tricky when people are facing up against the, the most militarized police departments uh, in the world. But that's not to say that there aren't ways to to resist both on the ground. And so I think that's also why I think while protests are really important, we have to think about or we have to also emphasize the more practical ways that things are changing. Right. So, I mean, for example, in the UK, um, all the unionization and strikes across different industries. I think that is such an important thing to focus on because uh, I mean, anything that's giving me hope. Yeah, I mean, the conservative government have tried to, I mean, didn't they just vote to uh, make it legal for, yeah, for to bring on contractors, essentially. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So they're still, they're still kind of combating. So basically, you're telling me don't have hope, it's premature. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think, I think we need to amplify these areas of hope. And I think we have to be able to also express why it's important and how and how it ties into you know our our vision of of things as well right I think because again we're dealing with like mass media misrepresentation and almost like a blackout in some ways and I remember I was talking to an uber driver the other day and you know he very just genuinely was like oh here's what I've been hearing from the news I thought they had a pay rise already why are they complaining about it and then it's like oh well what what gives them the right that kind of thing and it's like very Mm. well-trodden and so, you know, it was a very quick conversation of, well, actually, they're not saying they're the only ones that have the right, right? They're mm-hmm. saying, we're doing it this way because we have this kind of collective power. We also encourage other people to say that it's not right. And, you know, it, just that simple reframing was very, he was like, oh, okay, now that makes sense. Or like that, that's completely different to what I, I was been told. And for me as well, protesting is a very uh, immediate reactionary thing right? Protesting is not going to get us to the place we need to be. It's not going to give us the policies that we need. And a lot of the time, especially in this country and the US, the, 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 the demands of the protests are also either not achievable or they're vague or they're just not, yeah. you know, there's not it. it can, they're not entirely sustainable either. We can't be on the streets every day. I think COVID was quite like people might be like, oh, people are on the streets as much as they were anymore. But it's like, bro, pe- like life is changing. Pandemic conditions are changing as well. It, people don't have that spare time that they once did. That's why COVID was one of the biggest threats to government security ever. It was because finally people had time to realize how bad things were. And they had time to go outside and yeah. protest or organize but I think and what imagine otherwise. would be effective is like a mass scale protest that is sustained. And I think that's the piece that's missing that we... Or something like a general strike or something. Yeah, I mean, whatever the format is, uh, it has to just yeah, be something that's sustained and something that is um, 
uh, attended or, yeah, or something that is um, participated or people, people from across different, you know, paths right. have to participate in it for it to be effective, right? So like, if you look at, you know, the, um, the, the farmer protests in India, right, it became, it, it was a very sustained, I think it was over what, like six months or something or more than that effort or seven months, right? And I think when people talk about a general strike, when people talk about blah, 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 like they don't, again, I think maybe this uh, similar to the protest thing, right? They don't understand the infrastructure and the logistical um, things that have to go into it. If you're so asking much, people yeah. to do a general um, strike, you need to have food and resources yeah. and funding and all of that for literally millions of people like across yeah. the country. And, you know, and it's, it's possible. Got, it, yeah. it's, it's been done and it ha- is being done and will be done again. Um, but I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's time to connect people to what the practical reality is and I think people just have to understand like what is at stake and also what is required of them right like the people storming the the palace or the um parliament building in Sri Lanka it's not like a a fun I mean it became like a fun thing right but that involved putting your body mm-hmm. out there and again for the UK and the US right against militarized police and physical violence and altercations and you know putting your body as a physical barrier and as much as you know i think protesting is is one avenue is still important it still needs to be done and i I don't think people are ready for the level of escalation that is required at this stage now for protests to be effective or to push things further um yeah there's quite there can be quite a lot of like ableism and classism that like comes out of these these things as well especially in protest organizing like this this ego egocentrism and this this idea that we have to idolize someone there's always the same people speaking at protests yeah I literally had to take a break from doing protest organizing for a while at one point because it just it became so clear what certain people's intentions were around things I'm genuinely really hesitant to to organize in any kind of activist only activist space right now because of the tendency Mm. for egos and the, the tendency to immediately forget all the organizing principles yeah um, as they are because again we have all this internalized patriarchy and misogyny and capitalism that as if you don't actually record if you don't intentionally call it out then you just end up you know doing the same thing and we see it happening repeatedly right men are abusive in active spaces men take a lot of space in active spaces you know women are comfortable black women are ignored you know it's the same it's the same societal issues just replicated internally and then it becomes very difficult to to believe that people are invested in the same level of the change if they're not willing to even change their own behavior at a a really small personal level yeah and i think bringing it back to abolitionism like centrally right i think this idea of making protests sustainable but also doing them in a wise way it reflects this abolitionist idea of it's about all of us and it's also it's not about idolizing certain people angela davis always talks about how she hates like people idolizing her and same with mariam kaba and like a whole bunch of other people doing great work it's on the one hand we want to you know emphasize and highlight the work that's being done but also there's we don't want to get into this habit of you know, putting certain people on a pedestal um, and then being like, this is going to be the person that carries the, the revolution for us, which is often mm-hmm. like black yeah. women. 
But then also us doing this thing of actually people putting people's lives in danger by identifying them in such a central, Mm -hmm. like kind of instigator way. But like we've literally seen how there are so there's so much loss that happened during the civil rights movement in in the US, right? Because people were scapegoated and kind of everything was pinned on them. It was like, oh, this person is getting them all to riot and all of these things. We need to really, really try and unpack that ego-centered tendency. And then it's really easy to derail because then you can be like, well, this person did this one thing this time, you know? Exactly. That's why mutual aid aid is so important. And I think the most impactful and important book I've ever read was Mutual Aid by Dean Spade. That gave me so many tools. (laughs) Liana, now you can talk to Izzy about it. Yeah, we talked like, about it. You, I think you mentioned it on the last yeah, podcast, and I can't remember I, the rest of the title either. I only remember <laughs> mutual aid as well. I was like, do so, you know the rest of the title? No. But but I remember the essence, and that's what it's important. Yeah, um, we read the book. Bu- we yeah. read the inside. That's more important. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, I think yeah. I think you're so right in the in the kind of idolizing personality because that's also a really capitalist thing that to do, right? Is like this individualistic heroic sense that right. one person can save us and 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 again I think this is just like goes so much into um what people choose to do and not do right um people do a calculus before they do something of like okay well how much uh like what kind of a social currency impact will this have if I do this right and so a lot of the time people will not choose to do something that has zero social whatever capital because Right. If you're if you're sitting at home thinking about why you feel icky about abolition and you're like you're like trying to challenge yourself and you're doing some reading and you know maybe you're researching into like you know um, how how incarcerated people were treated, right? And that internal growth and that discomfort and maybe unless you post about it, uh, right, is not gonna is not gonna feel the same as if you repost I don't know Angela Davis quote or something like you know on Instagram, right? They actually have very different effects on your long-term development and growth like one does seem like okay well you're quoting the right person and it's probably the right quote therefore you probably believe everything that's in the quote but if you haven't done the internal work of you know actually really believing it um then where are you um you kind of lost me in the posting i'm just so bad at posting (laughs) (laughs) oh i just mean people choose to do the simple thing right that's true yeah yeah. that sounds good that sounds legitimate but have they really internalized done the research as well? What as it well. means because yeah, sometimes to, it could be completely a fake quote. <laughs> the other <laughs> thing that. you can post a fake quote. Um, well, that too. Um, so yeah, and I think uh, in in the mutual aid conversation as well, where we're talking about like, well, actually, there are lots of practical ways that you can contribute. But mm-hmm. if it doesn't result in some sort of like social media presence, then I think right. a lot of people choose not to engage in that way. Um, I mean, but I also do see how like leaders or not even spokes, you know, it's like uh, with the RMT strikes, the the spokespersons, they had, I guess, two main ones, Mick Lynch mm-hmm. and uh, Yeah, yeah. They were well, really that's the effective. Thing. Right. So. And they were really effective as spokespeople. And then, but what but they weren't like, saw, do you they think not, that, no, they're not leaders. In, in yeah, I didn't sense. feel like they were leaders. Right. But sense, I think, but, but I think people really immediately, I, I mean, I think the immediate reaction I saw to that was people said, well, you should be prime minister. You should be prime minister. Oh, okay, yeah. It's like, no, no, no. Like, we're not, <laughs> just because someone is articulate. Like doing a job right now. <laughs> just because someone is articulate doesn't mean, and also, you know, and not, not that I have a huge belief system in, in, you know, government anyway. So it's like, well, even if, 
they are an effective speaker and even if they do you know if they do believe the things that they say why put them in a position where they're going to be have their hands tied behind their back like you know what i mean like yeah their role is actually head important. of the labor party right are they are they going to actually be able to do the things that this union is asking for like probably not um they're so, gonna get kicked out essentially yeah, exactly right for being yeah. too pro pro labor exactly um so yeah, so I think we have to be really careful about hanging our hats on to other people because inevitably people are flawed. They're going to fuck up. They're probably going to not be your perfect leader or even a perfect victim, right? So it's like, you know, how do we take some of that capacity into ourselves? Obviously we can be inspired by as many people that we want, but at the end right. of the day, right, you know, what are we doing to, you know, push forward the things that we say that we believe that in them that they tell us to do, you know, so... Yeah, and I, I feel like this might be too up to, off topic and you can cut it if you want, but like maybe another conversation for um, your podcast at some point is um, this how celebrity and influencer culture is starting to influence how people organize and mm, it's starting mm-hmm. to kind of get people to careerize their role as a change maker or as I hate that term as well I hate change maker ugh. but like as an <laughs> activist or as an organizer this is so scary just because we know for example if you're um in terms of TikTok I read articles where it's like people key people in NATO are put in like key positions in TikTok in terms of like psychological um marketing type of positions so we know like there's a direct correlation. Obviously these um, Instagram, Facebook, you know, they've been infiltrated by the state. Yeah. So and I think that's- only so far you can go in terms of abolition within these platforms, right? Well, exactly. And that's another way that, you know, if, you're, if you are seriously uh, anti or thinking about abolition or trying to be anti-capitalist, right? Is that again, by definition, it's, it's really, it doesn't optimize or it doesn't prioritize any actions that will, you know, give you popularity or, you know, give you money. Uh, (laughs) That's really kind of against what the principles of evolution is. So I think for a lot of people as well, is that when you're making that transition between, you know, I'm not saying that the internet isn't useful and that, you know, you should try to make content or pass along this information right but it's they're part of our lives yeah we can't it's really a part of it, it yeah. either but you know if you are going to try to participate in this then the internet should be a very small part of the the work that you do or like the things that you concentrate and focus on right it, it should you your your activism or your participation in uh in changing society should not be mostly based on the internet and that's a reality like even um even if you are um someone who is i don't know who's been doing this for a long time or someone who's like accomplished or someone who's kind of like really in these spaces and most of your activity is online then you're actually not a community organizer you're not mm-hmm. you're not part of your community right you shouldn't um the majority of the work that you do um even if it isn't in a way that can be posted online um that's that's a lot more valuable than the the work that you did put out online right because the whole point of abolition is that you are connected to your community and you're connected to how to yeah how to reduce harm for the people around you and the people around you are not your instagram followers well it's quite difficult though because like on the one hand i think 
I've been thinking for a long because uh, I was working like digital data and technology stuff for a while and um, a lot around like kind of community building there and development um, and I was you know I was really thinking you know because th there's a really good book about like um, how technology intersects with like racial capitalism and all these different things and um, and like surveillance and oh my god I'm, I'm blabbering okay let me get to the point so um, I think that I think social media does have a place and I think being online and like digital data tech all of that it does have a place in organizing I think we're still figuring it out though and I think a lot more thought and conversation has to be dedicated to it and not just about how we resist um like the current systems and like how they use technology in in their kind of battle against us and then like oppressions but also like kind of understanding like okay how do we, how do we like how how do we use that to our advantage like how do we involve technology in this philosophy and this practice of abolitionism and so many other like social justice mm -hmm. movements yeah. i think i think more of us actually are like kind of digital and data and tech like illiterate than we think we are when it comes to um like how we realize these things and like work with organizing mm. so yeah i mean someone needs to go write a book about it like i mean i think point. it is i think it is being done right i mean essentially what you know the, the core principles of organizing haven't changed i really reject mm. this idea that you know oh we're in a new digital age therefore everything's different now it's like mm. things are different in the sense that, that we're being surveilled more so have to be more careful yes. um but you know the principles are still we have to communicate and uh, you know like work in solidarity together right and you know obviously using whatever communication channels are available um and i think we are doing that we're trying things out we're practicing and you know we're using you know we're using things like discord and you know slack and um and you know mutual aid groups are really easy like to pop up now because you know you just do like an online like you know call out for for money or you you know hmm. you give people you, you just create a venmo account and you know you can get money and resources um, so I think, you know, we are able to respond very quickly using technology. Um, I think the, yeah, I think the issue is just because I think what is actually happening is just the over-reliance on only sharing information or not even sharing or not even, you know, not it's, even it's, yeah. internalizing the information that you're sharing, right? Is Or, or you know, using, because I mean, I fucking love TikTok. Like I get so much education from TikTok. But it's not yeah. because I just sit and watch like not because you love NATO, right? 60, yeah, no, just that I watch like sixty second videos. I'm like, I get it, but it's because I use it as a way to, you know, um, it's it's directed me so many books um, on organizing or on theory that I didn't know about before, right? It just it should be used as a way to direct you to actual long form resources, or you know, to uh, to direct you to ways of new ways of thinking, or you know creating or discussing ideas right with the people around you it's not supposed yeah. to be a consumption-based activity that happens you consume it and then it's gone mm. um, yeah but I think what the problem is is that you know social media makes it really easy for you to feel that way right in the sense that you know you learn a piece of information from a video like great I learned something in a minute and then you repost it and then you feel like you've actually done something to further whatever you know the point that the video is making but you haven't really done that you've maybe shared it with some people but how right. have you actually applied it into your own life right and all these things I think we keep coming back to is okay that's great that you understand it and you heard it and you believe it but how how then how's that changed your actual behavior because that's what we're looking for right we're looking for behavioral change across society like that's 
that's what yeah. we need to get to. Well, that, that's that's the thing is it's all about it's this oversaturation of content that happens online and then like and the lack of intentionality when we're speaking about things. Um, I think that's particularly harmful. And like it's I mean, like there's all this stuff about like the attention economy that feeds into it. And then, like yeah. you know, Twitter discourse, how that influences like what are seen as facts and what are seen as not facts like you know yes I mean I think um, that disinformation thing is really dangerous especially if it's Twitter and TikTok that are deciding what's disinformation Mm -hmm. and they're directly connected to the state which is why you know an over-reliance on any of those things is it's not going to put you in a good position but having been connected to it great but right um, yeah it's still a useful tool so far absolutely that's something that deserves its its own its own like episode is is talking about the the media um, and how it how it capitalizes on this idea of like mm. attention as a scarce resource um, and how not enough of us understand that. And so our organizing, like Sarissa was saying, is all based on produce content, produce content, produce content, put out as many words as I can, saturating Twitter as much as I can about something. And um, often that gets actually weaponized against us um, and is, is detrimental um so yeah I'm like it's something that I actually really want to like research and like write more about one day is like kind of understanding how the attention economy you know interacts with social movements but um again it's like there's a lot of it's a lot that's that's a really interesting um look because I was wanting to do this book um that's sort of like an update on manufacturing consent Mm. um Mm. And so he talks about, you know, just does Noam Chomsky's. I've got that right here. Oh, you've got that one. So it's like a, it's a series of like articles, but basically exploring the idea of how it, how does it apply to now to the digital age Mm. as well and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So maybe you can come on and talk to us about it. Yeah. It's so insidious. Yeah. The way that reporting happens and yeah. And like, honestly, unless, unless you are aware of it and unless you, um intentionally uh focus on how to become aware of it as well it's very like easy to miss um and and I think it's what's omitted that's so dangerous too yeah and I think when you start to think about social problems as systemic right because what the media also tends to do is focus on individual incidents right you know they talk about crime Incidents rising, blah, blah, blah. but they won't, you know, they won't talk about, I mean, now they kind of have to, right? But typically they won't talk about how, as a society, certain things are slipping, or, you know, as a society, like actually, you know, violent crime is down, but maybe, like, you know, things like theft and things like are up. Um, or, you know, or if violent crime is up, then, you know, they don't really talk about, well, that usually correlates with, you know, standard of living going down <laughs> substantially as well. Um, so yeah, so I think when you start to think about things systemically and when you start to connect the dots on, you know, what used to be, or what is still, I think, presented in the media as separate issues, right? Because, you know, the, the media will never talk about trans rights in the same breath as, you know, human rights or body autonomy or, you know, the rise of fascism. In fact, I don't see any like left or liberal media outlets talking about how, you know, trans uh, transphobia and anti-trans uh, legislation is basically a precursor for fascism as it has always been in the history of any you know fascistic kind of upcoming I don't know. 
I think Novara Media is pretty good at that. Like, right, absolutely one... Novara. Right, but they're yeah. not. I mean, I was like, they're not uh, they're liberal. Not they're, they're very, yeah. they're very yeah. left, and they're not mainstream. Um, so yeah, I mean, they're, uh, honestly, apart from Novara Media, which has like a wide-ish readership, right? Uh, there's really no. I mean, they're independent as well, right? There's no non-independent mass media that's really that's really grasping any of these issues at the root, right? And it's, it's yeah. I think what's really funny is that sometimes when you look at economic analysis, so, you know, I used to work in finance. So uh, if you look at, sometimes you look at Bloomberg News, they actually report the news more, uh, more accurately because they're, you know, sometimes it's a dispassionate economic factor or factors and then they actually you know put on a, a dispassionate like you know a summary of the situation um that's actually more accurate than you know what's supposed to be journalism um but i mean sometimes it's not right because sometimes they remove like the human element right you know mm-hmm. for example when um when bolsonaro was coming up in uh in brazil it was all about like well what are the economic implications of this you know far right <laughs> leader and not the fact that the amazon is completely being destroyed right now um so you know it cuts two ways um but right but certainly um we're not we're not um told or we're not uh analyzing things through media in a way that's that's actually representative of what's happening so mm-hmm. it's it can feel so disjointed it can feel like you know oh here are 10 different issues, right? We talk about, you know, guns in America, right? Well, here are, you know, 10 different ways that we have to tackle it. And it's like, actually, no, if we just look at the systemic issues, um, yeah. because I mean, one, you, uh, right now you can't really get rid of guns in the US. They, they, they exist. Uh, the guns last forever as well. So the, there's more than people. Like, that's so insane. Yeah, exactly. There's, there's, more, more. there's more guns than people, right? So, you know, it's not, it's not about gun control or taking them away, right? And they're going to last longer than the people. As well. Exactly. It's really about, oh. okay, like, surely there's a systemic issues that we should be looking at. And mm-hmm. I just don't see that being reported, right? You, you just don't see that being discussed or analyzed. Um, well, that's the that, that's something something that came up because I have like on my I'm a bit of a like crazy scientist right so on I have like a big bulletin board by my bed and on it I just stick oh my god are you Charlie Day in that <laughs> like wait oh, yeah. you might be I have like yeah that's little, not too like, bad I was expecting a lot worse where's the red string yeah. that's yeah, what I exactly. know yeah that's the thing I need to get I need to source um, some red strings so if you have any links <laughs> let me know um but one of the things that came up when I was thinking about the attention economy and like some kind of thesis around it was um, the study of agnotology, which is the making and unmaking of ignorance, basically. So it's it's <laughs> essentially like how within like the sociological system of knowledge, right, and how we produce it, how um, it's studying how we like deliberately mm. produce knowledge, um, well, ignorance of knowledge or doubt um you know often for like a specific end um but yeah I feel like that's something that's would be so interesting to like look into more as well is like how it's a political instrument um yeah and it's why we can't we often can't identify our own propaganda because we've been ignorized on purpose yeah (laughs) ignorized it's really it's really it's really intentional and really violent like when we were saying you know earlier like you know how can we envision violence like I think a lot of abolitionism as well is about complicating what do we define as violence and who gets to define it and who gets to enact it um and you know never will the government say imprisoning someone equals violence but we all know that that is that is an inherent violence that is a harm and it's legitimate because the state is doing it um for the good of the people for like a good end so um yeah (laughs) 
So on that hopeful note, (laughs) you wanted to talk about how reproductive rights in prison, how does it affect, how is it connected? Um, Yeah, maybe we can contextualize it more in the sense that um, abolition, right? It just, it just, all the threads um, kind of run through as well. And I think it's, it's also part of how people talk about, well, on the left, there's like all these issues and, and there's no consensus or there's no you know one issue to focus on it's like well I think again right if we're not looking at these things at like a systemic or institutional level then I think you can kind of get lost in the weeds of that right whereas if we're saying well as a as a general overarching principle right you know we should include abolition then all these things kind of fall under the same umbrella right and then I think when we talk about prisons especially what we're almost always focused on is about like men and like male bodies in prison and how that affects them, right? How they get into that as well. Whereas like, you know, women or female bodies um, in prison um, are usually for a lot of different things as well. So, you know, for example, we never talk about how, you know, women who have faced abuse um, or sex workers who have faced abuse or people that have been trafficked that have faced abuse and then go on to commit a crime or, you know, even even murdering right someone that was abusive to them, right? Um, there, right now, there's not enough, or sometimes at all, protections in the criminal justice system, right, to account for those situations. Um, also, you know, women being pregnant in prison, or you know, women giving birth in prison, or people giving birth in prison as well, right? You know, um, how that is really harmful for you know children of incarcerated parents and that kind of thing. So we never really talk about. I mean, I guess it's the same with everything else, right? We never really talk about how that affects different segments of the population as well, right? We don't, and we rarely talk about how trans people are treated in prison because that's, again, an even more horrifying aspect, right? Like even during protests, a lot of my trans friends that were arrested, if they get detained, it's a, it's a real big question on how they're going to be treated, where they're going to be put, and is their physical safety going to be in danger, even if it's for a short period of time? Um, so yeah, so if we're talking about like women's rights or you know rights of you know feminine bodies, then it also has to include this aspect as well, right? If we're if you're going to talk about well, what about like murderers and rapists? Then also, what about the female or feminine bodies in prison, <laughs> um, and like the the nuanced ways that they get there? Um, and then it was like interesting as well because recently um, there was I think in the U.S. Um, there was two women in a prison that were impregnated by a trans woman who was then you know removed from that population and then like placed somewhere else and it's like and it it, that also brought out how inadequately we think about gender and things and I think it was interesting as well because when that reporting came out it was immediately assumed that it was some kind of assault or you know I think that's what most people think when oh people in prison were impregnated um, by another person in prison it's like oh it must have been but it's like well actually I don't know if that's necessarily the case um, in in like this kind of situation um, so yeah so I think there's a lot of things that gets overlooked and again right in terms of how we view violence right is it right to punish someone who suffered you know decades of abuse or years of abuse and then you know they decided to do something about that abuse is it fair well, it's not fair, right, to treat them in the same way as, as another situation. Yeah. Any thoughts, Isabella? 
Do you have anything? I, I don't. I about? don't know how much I would add specifically on this one. Um, yeah, because this isn't really like an area I've explored as much personally or come into contact with that much, you know, organizing as much. Like, yeah. So, yeah, I think Maybe, I think you covered a lot. <laughs> to be fair. Yeah, and I think it's more right. You know how how do we then incorporate this type of discourse as well? Because um, mm. obviously, it's a huge disservice to not think about it in this context. And I think, it, uh, in, if anything else, it just shows you that however way you cut it is, is not adequate, right? Like yeah. in a punitive system, these nuances get lost and you know these people are um, harmed again, repeatedly, um, right, in going through the system. So you know, we haven't addressed any of the harms that they've committed, uh, sorry, that they've been through. Um, and we've just punished them for consequence of something that is essentially society has failed them on as well, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, not to, not to even talk about the fact that, you know, women in prisons are also more likely to be poor or working class or, mm -hmm. you know, maybe they, they have children as well, right? So again, all of these things um, really affect, uh, yeah, how, people, how people's lives are, are, are damaged. And plus overall, right, whether, whether it's a, a female prison or a male prison, um, there is so much inherent violence in those systems, um, mm -hmm. right? So if not, you're talking about your increase in recidivism when you go to prison. Right. <laughs> I have no questions about that. I think you just explained <laughs> that really well. <laughs> so um, yeah, anything else to add? I, I think the only thing I would add is something along the lines of you know, this, this issue of like reproductive rights in prisons and, you know, the, the criminalization of reproductive rights, like particularly in the United States at the moment, it's, you know, that's not the only, that's not the only sense in which like bodies are like kind of like are owned in a sense or controlled or manipulated. Like that's the whole idea of the prison. It's like that idea of biopolitics, right? It's, you know, bodies, um, the, the purpose of the prison almost is to control, manipulate and harm bodies um, often for specific ends. So whether that's, you know, re-legitimizing the state and its idea of who's good and who's bad, or whether that's literally putting them to work for like ridiculously low wages or no wages at all. Yeah, slave, um, slave labor, yeah. Yeah, like I was, I was speaking to someone that's in, uh, in prison at the moment and you know, he was just, you know, he, he was like, oh, um, I really feel for you guys out there with like the rising cost of living and everything. He's like, yeah, even here, it's really bad. And I was just like, no, I think it's what? probably worse for you. But like, I appreciate <laughs> you like looking up, like this guy was so like compassionate and everything. I was like, but then Gosh, you don't need to be, <laughs> you don't need to be um, even comparing those things to be honest. It's just, yeah, it was like, he was saying like the price of, um, the price of just like a cabbage was like two pounds. Like the price of like a a, 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 can, a a tin of canned tuna was like two pounds or two pounds fifty. In and prison, like in yeah. prison, like to to oh. buy that to then like make so, your own food, right? Oh, so they can do that. I didn't even know that they can do that in yeah, prison. Like commissaries, yeah, yeah, right. like commissary. And then in but, the US, if you're put to work, then you know you can, yeah, you get like five dollars wages, or something. Yeah. yeah but then your wages per week might be like eight pounds so it's like right. 
you can and this, yeah. this prisoner in particular was vegan as well so and he also had diabetes so I was just oh, like wow. how are you how are you doing this <laughs> But, yeah. yeah, access yeah. to healthcare in prisons is also... Oh, it's it's awful. <laughs> non-existent. Awful, awful, awful. Um, yeah, that, that is a thing about the slave labor. I don't know what it's like here, but I remember, I think, last month. So, um, so the governor of Arizona, did you hear this? Where he was basically saying that their economy can't... Um, like can't exist without can't divest from prison labor yeah yeah he's like it will collapse without prison labor and hence we have to have it so um so we just have to have it yeah we <laughs> have to wild. because the economy there's no other solution to <laughs> we are dependent on slave labor therefore we must have slaves you know yeah, um, sounds sounds like a similar argument they tried to make 400 years ago yeah it's the same right? it's really the same argument um but is it that bad in the, the UK in terms of... Is it? I mean, yeah, I think so. I mean, I in haven't... Because interestingly, I, cause I've mainly been visiting detention centers before right. visiting this person that's in, in, in prison. Um, but he's in prison because he's waiting to find out about his asylum claim. And like, you know. Um, oh. So, um, like, he already served his sentence. Um so yeah, that's the first time I've like spoken one-to-one with someone that's incarcerated in the right. UK about the whole prison labor um, aspect. But um, I'm al- I almost always say like, it's not as bad in the- as in the US, like, um, because often it that is the case. Like it's just- Yeah, it's not the same the like concerted scale and it's also not the same like pipeline that yeah. goes into- the different yeah but it's but it's definitely there and it's definitely evolving like um can you know, people even the who go to prison huh? right can people in prisons here vote i don't think can so. they vote i don't believe so no i mean yeah i know they watch question time and they laugh at the politicians just as we do <laughs> um but oh god i just yeah. feel sick when i watch that now yeah <laughs> it's awful so you can't vote while you are detained in a penal institution in the or, uk or unlawfully at large unlawfully at large that sounds like <laughs> the name like a fellow oh, because like you don't have a permanent residence or what no like, it means if they haven't caught you yet oh you still can't vote that's hilarious even you though technically like, you're not in prison. imagine you're like go go to vote because but you're like running from that would be amazing. I'd be so impressed with that person. I'd be so impressed. I'd be so proud of that person. <laughs> yeah. Like, damn. <laughs> but also kind of not, because I'm like, really? Like you still have faith? Not that important. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Do something um, else. <laughs> like you're risking all this for, for voting. Something. Yeah. For um, voting for Oh, know, this is interesting right. actually. So uh, in 2005, the ECHR, which is European Court of Human Rights, ruled that the UK was in breach of Article 3.1 in relation to prisoner rights. So it was unresolved for a decade. In December 2017, the UK government came up with proposals that the Council of Europe said were sufficient to comply with the ruling, and it, it, the case was closed in 2018. So they did, um, they did try to do some things to correct it the solution uh, 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 so, but yeah to allow prisoners heard... a temporary license to vote was the, the main proposal 
and also a compromise. Oh. Now that we're out of the EU, right, and we've got the new human rights bill, uh, that's probably going to get taken away, I assume. From what I've heard, like in prisons, well, this isn't a specific prison, but I believe it's probably symptomatic of many other prisons across the UK. It's like COVID just equaled rollback, right. whatever progresses were made in terms of um, prisoners' living conditions. Yeah, I mean, like I heard, you know, I just watched um, this documentary, Ithaca, on, um, it's on the father of Julian Assange and his mm-hmm. fight, you know, it's, it's actually a really lovely, um, I thought it was really moving. Uh, documentary um but they did say like during covid uh, julian was under 23 hours of solitary a day yeah and that's, and that's, that's common, common. That because they just common. didn't have as much stuff so well the argument well the argument that gets thrown back in prisoners faces every time they complain about something they get told oh well we're understaffed right so we can't do anything like we're understaffed yeah. and, we, and we have to cut back because of covid but that it just becomes this long state of emergency, essentially, of like, oh, well, COVID exists. And so it's never going to get better. Like, you, you know what yeah, I'm saying? Like, it's just, it was just used yeah. to, it was just like, for example, how um, you couldn't, because I, I know that I, I tried to, you, you couldn't pass anything to, you know, in Downing Street you weren't allowed to pass anything like a petition or anything you couldn't pass them even through the guard or anything because of COVID Mm. you know what I mean like it's just they're using it to roll back all our rights but that's the thing it's like you know COVID could have been a really great opportunity for us to actually implement some of these abolitionist you know uh, principles right because uh, especially in the U.S. at the height of it I mean I it I would, I definitely recommend people to, to research Rikers. Um, and, mm. you know, if you're, <laughs> if you want to know anything about the, the conditions of prisons in, in the US and how bad it can get and how bad it currently is, um, you know, look into Rikers Island. Um, but anyway, so yeah, it was, it was a lot of, I remember there being a lot of discussion then about what do we do with the prison population and how, right, if you're going to say it's, it's underfunded, then, you know, then, a solution to that would be to, to start releasing prisoners, basically. And I think there mm-hmm. were some efforts uh, locally to, to do that, but we could have done it at a much bigger scale, right? If we had the general, I think, public understanding of what it would mean. Uh, and again, right, it, it immediately went to the question, well, what about the murders and the rape? <laughs> and I like, mean, you could easily just start with a nonviolent offender. Exactly, and yeah. Go. What about all the, especially in the US, all the people on, on bail in detention because they haven't been able to post bail, like we can, <sighs> so for nonviolent offenses, we can just get rid of it, right? And then, you know, if you, if you start carving it out that way, you can end up with like thousands or tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, right, that don't need to be in prison um but that we don't have to be paying for them in prison to then just be released from prison right and mm. i think if we tried to do that on a bigger scale we would have also seen how the result of that did would not have resulted in you know a mass like increase in crime or i don't know police trying to catch up or anything like that um so i think there was a missed opportunity and just because i think we weren't ready to actually come up with solutions um that were actually helpful and humane back in so. back in march 2020 iran temporarily freed i don't know how you can temporarily free someone anyway oh temporarily God, yeah. freed fifty-four thousand prisoners to combat the spread of covid because the way that it spread in in jails was just yeah next level i think a lot of good things happened for the abolitionist movement with covid like this like renewed sense of like time to 
become conscious of things and like the right. time to actually do things and also time to I think more and more people became conscious of like they had life outside of their work or like that they needed to find life and identity outside of their job because at one point it was like your mental health would just go to the gutter if all your well, like a lot of people's did because it was like you're inside all the time you're working from home and that's it and that right. made you hyper um conscious of the fact that our lives are encouraged to be our jobs um and so yeah I think I think that was like positive and like consciousness raising but and also like I think the practice of mutual aid I mean there's been a history of it in the UK you know but I don't think it like there's just been so many groups set up um so many organizations that have just you know that maybe were existing before but like finally got the recognition they deserved and the support they deserved I think Mm-hmm. um on a new level so I think yeah because like even like before I came on this podcast I was like making a list of like oh I should probably make a list of like you know organizations to shout out or like good stuff going on and literally like the list was so long because I was like and this is London centric you know a lot of this there's a lot of stuff going on in other parts of the country the main thing I would do is like plug some like things to read and organizations uh yes, for people that are wanting to learn more about abolitionism. Um, specifically in the UK, there's a lot of good work being done, you know, not just by SOAS detainees support, but also um, groups like Bail for Immigration detainees, they're a charity providing legal advice and like support to migrants. There's also um, Stop Deportations, that they're like a direct action group as well. Migrant Organize also do a lot of community organizing and advocacy around those things. Um, cradle community is also good like the collective of abolitionists and also just kind of highlighting that one of the main like one of the main kind of like faces of abolitionist organizing in the UK that's really booming at the moment is um anti-raids groups like the formation of Mm -hmm. more and more anti-raids groups who provide direct action to you know um prevent people getting put into tension um because of their immigration status and they're so effective very effective so effective like the police just have no idea how to react to them so it's great um so yeah if if you're trying to get involved in in some kind of abolitionist um organizing you know either look at one of those um groups that i mentioned or um just look for if there's a anti-raids group in your area just like Mm -hmm. type in yeah there's a ton in london yeah and they're very they're very friendly um and open um and yeah so i think i think definitely try to join an organization organizations but like i think there's some loads of practical useful skills that everybody should have anyway you should try to do like a bystander intervention training because that's really applicable to any situation you see an altercation on the street and you don't first of all don't call the police um right so Number how are you gonna handle don't it? call the police <laughs> so how really are you gonna handle point. it if you don't call the, call the police right yeah. so um That'd bystander intervention de-escalation training as well you know all these trainings i mean there's tons again tons of groups doing this in london or wherever you are locally but also just online um and try to like practice with friends if you're doing online as well because a lot of it is you know a threat assessment or what to do if someone's being physically aggressive towards you right and you do kind of need to practice that um to to be effective so these things and also um just learning about the law is really useful not just necessarily for yourself right i don't really think i would get arrested unless i was at a protest uh just you know because the way that i look but you know it's, it's really good to have these um these things ready right you know if 
if you see someone being arrested, what do you do, right? The answer is never just walk away. <laughs> if you ever see any police interaction with another person, always stay. I mean, ask the person like, uh, you know, do, do you mind if I'm here? Like, can I film? Um, so, you know, there, there's like a list of things that you should do when you see someone being arrested or being detained by the police, right? So again, get, get yourself up to date on that and also learn about what, what rights people have when they are being detained by the police, right? Or if the if police comes to not just your door, but anyone's door. So knowing these really practical things are actually really helpful. And, you know, knowing, doing bystander intervention training, um, knowing knowing the law, right? You don't need to even join an organization for that. These are all just capacities that you can have within yourself. Um, yeah. So, yeah, and I think, but I think joining an organization kind of gives you like context and, you know, you get to hear about, right, why people are doing this and, you know, the, the impact that it has on, on people that you're helping as well. Um, so yeah, there are so many ways to resist that's not protest, essentially. Um, there's so many, I mean, especially because, you know, these laws were always coming into place, right? They were, all, they were always going to happen. So, um, you know, knowing the resources of, okay, now what do we do on a practical level, um, mm -hmm. I think is, is more, more important than anything else. Yeah, I think remembering that resisting involves creating. And if you ask, you know, if you're involved in anything that involves reducing harm, that doesn't involve the police you are creating part of that abolitionist vision part of that world so you're in a good place if if you're creating something that reduces harm and doesn't rely on police so that can be so many different things um if you think about it but yeah those are some directives <laughs> it does it does make me hopeful i think it's just what's key now is us keeping sustainability in mind um mm -hmm. sustainability and like that community-centered approach uh, not individualized approach. Um, I think that's really, really right. central. Thank you. You're, um, you're like, I'm going to inject hope in the end. <laughs> I always, I always try to because it can be so depressing. Yeah, <laughs> I think it is so important. Um, and I guess um, Sayarsa has been saying this before many times, like it's so annoying to just talk to people that are so defeated, but really they haven't done anything. That's why like, they're just defeated by yeah, doing maybe nothing. Maybe you would feel less <laughs> shitty if you were doing stuff. You did something, yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. 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 Yeah, no, exactly. Like all the people that are the most hopeful are the people that are doing things. Yeah. I find. Absolutely. Um, True. I think it's hard not to be hopeful when you are like if you're actually doing things and you're in community with people that are like like I think it's a miracle like every time I like go to a protest or like I even just I'm in an organizing meeting with people about something to do with abolitionism I look and I just think like this is a little miracle right now because life is really shit and people are trying us so the fact that we're all here is just that's good in itself that's great. I love it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. That was a really lovely conversation. <laughs>